BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, we're rolling. What's up, Gypsy Gang? We're back for another episode of the Gypsy Tales podcast. Frothing to bring you this one. Uh, really, this combo just ticks all the boxes for me. Uh, Chris Kiefer is about as much of a dirt bike nerd as it gets just really uh really fits with my vibe you know uh legendary dude he's been around the industry for a really really long time uh, i was cool to hear some of his backstory as well um i guess the way that he grew up kind of lends itself to where he ended up uh his like place in the industry some cool stories uh about racing and testing initially uh, and then we just sort of bench race talked about testing how to set bikes up suzuki's all that good stuff 350s we definitely talked about 350s so yeah i won't spoil too much of this episode for you but i absolutely love this episode with chris Kiefer. i knew i would go on into it and it was just as good as i thought and hoped it would be hopefully i'll be able to get over to the states uh in 2023 uh, and go up to the high des do some riding and testing with the great man himself so before we get into this podcast with chris Kiefer, though just need to give you some words from our awesome sponsors because it's the holiday season uh and i'll be giving thanks to our friends over at manscaped because everyone loves turkey and stuffing but you'll be looking like dessert you'll be looking like a real snack with the help of manscaped and their performance 4.0 package the leaders in below the waist grooming have blessed you with the ultimate ultimate thanksgiving dinner topic tell your in-laws about your new cutting edge ball trimmer and gift yourself or the man in your life your ultimate men's hygiene bundle trim your pumpkins by going to manscape.com and using the code gypsy gang for free shipping and 20 percent off look we all ride a lot if you listen to this podcast and there's nothing worse uh than using a subpar tool on your bike but there's also one thing worse than that, and it's using a subpar tool on your junk. Uh, you'll end up with some pretty nasty chafing. Uh, and yeah, look, you're going to be in a world of hurt if you don't get the right tools for the job. That's where Manscaped comes in. Their performance 4.0 package, uh, or as I like to call it, the perfect package for your package, uh, is what you need. Inside that, you'll find the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker, Ear Nose, and Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserve a ball deodorant, crop reviver toner, performance boxer briefs, and the travel bag to hold all your goodies. That thing's come all over the world with me this year, actually. Uh, and I I had the performance package 3.0. I've just upgraded, and I tell you what, it's nice. The lawnmower and the weed whacker are great as well, uh, but don't forget the liquid formulations. Their crop 
Preserver, Ball Deodorant, and Crop Reviver Toner Spray. Uh, they're pretty awesome. I just kind of go through the whole set. Uh, from where to go, you do the trim, you do the little spruce of the junk. Uh, and look, it, you, you end up in a, in a much better place with yourself, with your lady. Uh, so guys, don't hesitate. Go to manscaped.com. Uh, use the code GYPSYGANG at checkout. That's going to give you 20% off plus free shipping. Your balls will thank you. And I will thank you because you'll be supporting this silly little podcast we call Gypsy Tales. We're also brought to you by the guys at MX Store and it is the best time of the year right now to buy at MX Store. They are midway through their MX frenzy. Uh, as you hear this, you will need to act because this uh, this offer runs out as of Tuesday night up to 50% off, uh, 10% off bike parts, 10% off accessories, uh, that's riding gear, protection, lifestyle stuff, luggage stuff, probably Albeck is what you're after there. Uh, 20% off ballads off-road, so if you always hear me talking about the foot pegs, now's your time to get them at 20% off. Uh, and you could win as well just by shopping with the guys at MX Store, so mxstore.com.au. We're also brought to you by the guys at Rival Inc. You can head to rivalincdesignco.com. They're slinging that fresh gypsy kit if you type gypsy into the search bar. It'll bring it up. You can chuck your own logos and stuff on there to customize it, but you're really going to get that dope retro gypsy kit. That's really what you're after. Uh, use the code GYPSYGANG. That's going to get you 15% off. That is also going to get you 15% off at dixonquality.com.au. They just dropped their Jack Miller flannel today. That thing is limited edition. Go and pick that up. You won't regret that. Uh, and also, the guys at Fist Handwear, you can head to fisthandwear.com. Uh, and Gypsy Gang is going to get you 15% off there as well. We're also brought to you by the guys at Boost Mobile. $140, uh, sorry, 140 gig for $200. That's pretty much going to last you 12 months with a $2 SIM card, no locking plans. You're on the Telstra network. I'm running the 5G at the moment on Boost. Um, look, I've said it before. I've said it for a really long time, actually. You really just don't need anything other than a Boost Mobile SIM card in your phone. Uh, and last but not least, the guys at Tropical Auto Group, for getting us to the track, uh, would not be able to do pretty much anything without the brand new D-Max that we run from the guys at Tropical Auto Group. Head to tropicalautogroup.com.au. Ask for Kyle when you call them. He's a member of the Gypsy Gang. You're a member of the Gypsy Gang. Those sort of things work out, you know? Uh, he's going to hook it up and I believe if you buy a new or used car off him and you tell him you're in the Gypsy Gang you're going to have $500 gift card for MX Store also if you're still listening you can get to our merch store gypsy-tales.shop 30% off on all of our merch stock we're making way for some new designs pick yourself up some Gypsy Gang swag uh, and the code Gypsy Gang is going to get you 30% off that's a lot off that's a lot of percents so yeah, that's it for the ads. I appreciate you. We appreciate you. This is a great podcast with a really great dude, Chris Kiefer. From the gang yeah, yeah, it's, um, I mean, Moto's, I mean, we're rolling, so we'll just roll into it. Chris Kiefer's on the podcast, by the way, everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Moto scene here is like, pretty pretty amazing like i mean we've got really good riders obviously and we've sort of always had like a steady representation of guys on the world stage 
Um, but yeah, it's like super healthy at the moment. And COVID had just exploded because no one could kind of travel. Um, and I, I think Oz, Oz is different in to the US in the fact that a lot of people in Oz travel. And I don't think a lot of people right. in the US do travel. I mean, when I lived there, I'd, every seemed like every girl I met didn't have a passport. And, you know, it was kind of like a, it was a real thing to go overseas. Whereas to Oz, it was just super common. So I think our moto scene kind of uh, took a bit of a hit because people were so willing to travel um, in, in Oz. But then right. COVID, man, people were just locked down. They couldn't really go do that much so people bought bikes and trailers and you know just kind of exploded eh? yeah it seems like that was the case for everyone you know even just for your neck of the woods but for ours too like uh where i live in asperia california we're in the desert and that's one of the reasons why i live where i live because i can just literally ride from my my front door out to all my tracks and stuff and i started seeing an uptick of people out there riding um, side by sides, people yeah. camping more, and that really hasn't slowed down. It kind of last two years, it's still popping, you know. So uh, it's, it's so good. good. It's good for our industry, man, and and it's it's for what I do and and for what you do. I think it's it's even better, so people can get information. There's more content, and there's more people doing it. So yeah, it's it's cool. So where where is Hesperia? Because I've heard of it, but I'm not sure that I've ever been there. Or is there any tracks around there that I'd know? <laughs> yeah. No one's going there, dude. <laughs> you're not going to go there unless you're driving through Vegas. So yeah, uh, yeah. it's about 30 minutes, no- 30 minutes north of Glen Helen Raceway. Yeah. So I would have, I would have definitely drove through there for like to go to Vegas and shit for sure then. Yeah. So like when you're driving, you go up the hill, what we call the hill, you go up the Cajon Pass and you're like, it's just barren desert. And you're like, I don't think I want to live out here. That's, that's where I live. <laughs> So, so is it when you go past Glen Helen and then you've got like that real slow, steep, steady climb for like a, it feels like a while and then it flattens out up top and then you've got a bunch of gas stations to the right and to the left and then some like housing tracks along like the main road to keep going to Vegas. Is that where, is that Hesperia? Yeah, that's Hesperia. So right when you get up that big old long drag that you're talking about right at the top, that's Hesperia, California. Actually, I mean, a lot of good riders have come from that area like ty davis uh he was born and raised there larry rossler like he's an off-road champion he was up there um travis preston so uh my parents moved up there when i was like a year old because we can shoot guns we could ride dirt bikes it was like the wild west you know and then yeah. housing costs were cheaper which they still are so uh i just kind of stayed there because of dirt bikes you know and i could do everything right from my house that's pretty sick yeah i mean dude i i remember <laughs> i remember so many times like that place when, whenever you get down that hill that's when it started to feel like i was back home because i lived in temecula i lived in like temecula and then i was in huntington beach in la so kind of whenever and we actually uh we actually would go to vegas almost almost once a month like i think if you average it out for the entire time that i lived in the u.s because yeah. we sort of didn't read i was over there with a, a couple of australian friends and like we didn't really have any friends in california 
and uh so yeah we'd like work and then we'd go spend the weekend doing our editing and shit in uh in vegas and we had like a relationship with one of the hotels there so we used to pretty much stay there for free so i remember so many times i'd stop at like the gas stations at the top of that hill and that's kind of like the first place where you'd want to like get some food or whatever or then like being hung over as yeah. shit on the way back from vegas so yeah i actually do remember that place yeah. pretty well that's crazy yeah yeah so that's where i grew up man like uh I'm unlike you or you were in Temecula like every time I go down to Temecula Murrieta like I feel like it's just way too many people mm. and I feel like I'm trapped trapped a little bit so it's nice for me to be out in the open spaces uh, spaces even though it's it's grown over the years like cost of living has gone up and there's more people moving up there because it's cheaper living than Temecula uh, but I like it because I'm in the middle I can get away from like the mecca of dirt bikes because yeah. you know you're in Temecula everybody rides everybody loves dirt bikes uh, I'm up in the desert kind of can do my own thing but yet if I need to get down there it's an hour hour and a half um, if I want to go to the mountains I'm an hour if I want to go to the beach I mean we're down here it's an hour and a half so it's like it's not that far yeah that's cool man no, I appreciate you I didn't know you had to come that far to do the pod so I appreciate that first of all Oh, no, man. And, you know, we started this thing, but I've been watching your stuff for the last couple of years and it's just, it's been getting better. And a lot of, you have a lot of cool stories and people coming in here. And we were just talking about the Rhino thing a little bit. And Rhino intrigues me, even though he's, he's off in left field at times, but some of the things that he does say is, is, is spot on. So uh, it's, yeah, I just, I've been a fan of Gypsy for a while. So it's cool that you're doing that. No, I appreciate it, man. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's like, it's kind of, I feel like I've actually got a bit of a um I've like there's a bit of a narrative at the moment that I'm like full anti-America because I've been going so hard on like the whole world supercross thing but so I'm like in the back of my head the last few weeks I've been thinking about that like oh maybe I need to maybe I need to like not say exactly what's on my mind every single time I'm doing this thing but um because <laughs> it's sort of, maybe it's coming across it in the wrong way but yeah I mean I just love the sport and it's like what I've always done and it's been really cool for me to like I don't know give people it seems like a bit of an opportunity to say different things and you know what what they can in in other places or maybe like the the format of like doing it for so long um maybe lends itself to that so but no I, I appreciate I appreciate it eh? and likewise being a fan of the stuff that you do it, if, well, if you, oh sorry go ahead no, I say, well, it's nice to, we can talk about dirt bikes. Like there's other, you know, subjects within our industry that a lot of people don't cover. So mm. you cover some of those things, which I like, you know, and for me, I'm a little bit like that myself. I love dirt bikes. I'm engulfed in it. Uh, Dan and Dow, I ride a, a crap ton, um, but it's nice to talk about real life things. Like I talk a lot about my family, uh, helping people like just relationships and just things that come within dirt bikes. Like, cause if those things aren't in line, um, the dirt bike life suffers a little bit. So yeah. it's nice to have a show like yours that it just kind of encompasses the whole thing, you know, not just, hey, we're talking about racing every weekend. Yeah. No, no, I appreciate that. And yeah, I think it's just one of, I think it's just what you kind of into as well, you know, like I've just always been a fairly deep person. I like to think way deeper into shit than maybe like the, the average guy, which I think if you ask any of my friends that are with me day in and day out, it's annoying as fuck. <laughs> when it's like only for three hours I think people like it so it's like the perfect medium you're like are you analyzing every little thing that what's going on just constantly man. are you that deep yeah 
Yeah. 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 It's just, I don't know. It's just, I got a, I got a friend that's just like that too. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a way that it's just a way that people think like the, the other person that I know that is like that is Casey Stoner. So like when me and him get together, like an hour's drive to the track with me and him would just fucking drive some people crazy because we can just talk about like the same (laughs) thing for like an hour and a half and just split it a million different ways and like my brother is the complete opposite to me and he'll come riding and he's just like you two are absolute <laughs> dickheads <laughs> i think we all have some friends like that i got one like he's a photographer i call him a beautiful mind because he's so artsy and he's so deep and i'll send him off to do some of my photography and i'm like all right man i'll see you in an hour because i know i won't see you he's doing this this deep thought you know artsy photography with dirt bikes which is cool but it's like man we got a we got a deadline we got to yeah, yeah. kind of hurry this shit along yeah. a little bit so yeah oh that's funny no well uh it must have been cool to, to talk about the hesperia stuff then it must have been pretty cool to grow up in that environment where you're not super removed like i think if you went a little bit deeper into the desert probably would have turned out maybe a little bit more cooked <laughs> but you probably that like that yeah, was probably yeah. a good zone to where yeah you're only you're kind of close to uh you know close to everything to where it's not like you're uh the, the desert life can consume you because you definitely drive past once you get like deeper into that drive to vegas like you definitely see some wild sights you probably had a really cool mix of like being able to ride being able to do whatever you want but also still stay like super connected uh in a way that i guess like kept you like relevant and up to date with you know the ways of the world and the industry yeah like for me so obviously my parents when we started doing all this we rode uh went out on weekends went camping in the desert and just like you said if you went deeper down in the desert, like barstow and things like that it gets really really bad lots of meth labs and things but just growing up where I grew up, there was a lot of drugs. Yeah. And as you know, I'm sure you got the same similar story. And a lot of people do is like dirt bikes kind of saved me from all that kind of shit. Like I was always wanting to get up the next morning and go riding versus my buddies, you know, getting smashed or, or doing a line on, on the dashboard or something, you know, hanging out. So I was like, you know, I'll be the DD. You guys do what you need to do. But like, I want to get up and go ride a dirt bike. So for me, it was super easy to do that just from the house. I didn't have to have a car. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have to uh, get my license at 16. I can just go have some freedom from my house. Um, but I grew up a little bit different. See, my mom was disabled all my whole life. So my mom was uh, had multiple sclerosis. Yeah. So she was in a wheelchair since I was real little. And my dad worked an hour and a half away. So my life was different. Like I just rode dirt bikes, went to school, came home, took care of my mom and did that. But I was always wanting to be a racer. Like we all, you know, everyone that rides dirt bikes, I want to be a professional racer. But at, you know, 15, 16, I was like, you know what? My parents don't have enough money. I'm not traveling the world to do all these amateur races. How can I quote unquote make it with dirt bikes and make that my life? So I just started tinkering with shit back when I was like 15, you know? So I would mess stuff with my bike, try to go, ride and see if I felt it and that just kind of hung on for a while and to me I owe all of that stuff to the desert because mm. if I was down in Temecula or Murrieta I wouldn't have been able to do all that I would just have been trapped you know mm. so yeah you're right there's good and bad to living where I live but for me I took the good and ran with that 
Man, that that's a cool story. I um I actually just finished reading Steve-O's book. Uh, yes, I have, of all people, I think he's going to do the show pretty soon. But um, he actually his mum had an aneurysm when uh when he was like kind of I think he was maybe like nineteen from memory. Um, and then he ended up mm-hmm. with his mum was basically like she needed twenty four hour care, and he ended up um I guess like leaving and doing the jackass thing or whatever. Um, but then his sister became like a, a full-time carer for him. And then, man, to hear you say that, like the next day from reading that, it's like, I wonder how common that was for people to have to like look after their parents. And that, that must have such a crazy impact on, on your life and how you see the world. And I'm sure like levels of gratitude that you'd have that I'm sure a lot of other people don't have that were, that didn't get to kind of like live in that situation, you know? Yeah, like for me, I think I would have probably went further with my racing if my mom wasn't disabled. But now that I got older, I look back on some of that and I go, having my mom sick, and I'm not a big religious person. Like I don't really, I mean, I believe there's something up there that it's a higher power, but I'm not sitting there going to church. I'm not, you know, praising to something. You know, I just think maybe my mom was put here for me to turn out the way I turned out. Mm. Like, my business, um, my business is catered to help people. Like I got away from Dirt Rider Magazine because the sales side and the edit side was too close. So I was like, I wanna do something where I don't have to lie and bullshit people mm. in order to write an article, you know? So I look at how my life has been formulated and I go, man, I think it's because of, I had to go home, take care of my mom. Mm. I had to go ride a dirt bike. I went racing locally cause I couldn't travel cause I had to be home to take care of her. And then that's what my life was like. Like, hey, Kiefer, do you wanna uh, go to Germany and race German Supercross? Sure. Uh, well, you have to live over here for you know two months at a time. Well, I can't do that, so I can't take that ride. So there's a lot of things that I could have took that I mm. wasn't able to do because I had to be home for my mom. Um, but now that she's gone and I look back and I have kids and I'm married, I'm like, man, it's crazy how shit works out because mm. now my life is like, formulated to help these kind of people that ride dirt bikes and some mm. of my passion hopefully spend their money in the right way that they're not getting snowed uh, by some sales team at another big magazine or something so um yeah it, it, it's insane man like to think about what a disease that killed my mom kind of helped me live mm. it's insane yeah yeah man and i think that a lot of times it's so hard and I think that like the more people's lives go on the more you realize these things and I think it's probably one of the cool things about dirt bikes in a sense is that you kind of like adversity is what shapes people to be better and I think that most people spend their life moving away from adversity and trying to be as comfortable as they can and like not struggle and not suffer and not go through things that in the moment are perceived as negative but then I think that the older you get and the more times you go through fucked up things, the more clarity you have that basically there's always a crazy silver lining that you can pull out. And it's almost like mm-hmm. the more fucked up a thing is, the the brighter that silver lining um, will be in the end. And like before I said about, you know, losing my visa and stuff to the US and then it just like forced me to be here. But then 
being here is what made me build this and this podcast is like it's so much more than a podcast for me it's like a it's a creative outlet it's like i feel like i get to help a lot of people and i I know that to be true because of the messages that i get and then there's like a community of people that you know listen to this and so it's like there's it was out of this fucked up thing that was like in the moment and i think that the the real secret then is like once you know this once you've been through it once before the next time something fucked up happens to you like in the moment you just don't feel as much of the pain of whatever it is that you're going through and then you can instantly look for Mm -hmm. those silver linings and i actually think that that's kind of like the ticket to like live in a a good life and i feel like yeah i mean it kind of explains a bit of like the positivity that you've always got and like i don't know you you've always come across from any time i've watched anything that you've done as like you've you're always a positive guy you're always seeing the you know you'll always play the other side and you'll always be you know kind of positive and like fair in that sense and it it, that explains a lot that you've had to deal with such a like a gnarly situation from such a young age yeah it's weird because like what you say you're kind of you have a therapy session it's like this is kind of like a therapy session for not only you to get things out out of your chest and talk about but also the other person on the other side of here right so for me you know, being with, you know, Mathis and Pulp, and we have these stories that come out that I talk about, it's kind of like it's therapy. And then same thing, you know, mm. like what you said, people hit me up like, dude, that was a cool story. Like, I never knew that about you. And I'm like, man, that would have never happened if mm. I was never on this show or never got a chance or, you know, never went through all the bullshit. Yeah. And I think it's how you're raised too. My dad was a workaholic. You know, if I went to a race, he'd be like, why'd you lose? And I go, I'm just, you know, I got work. And he's like, well, go work harder. Yeah. And I think all of this, you know, shapes your, your work ethic. Cause I'm sure you get, Oh dude, I love your job. I want your job, man. It's so <laughs> cool. You just sit there and talk to people all day. You're like, Oh dude, you have no idea how much work goes into this shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh no. 100%. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think the other cool thing, like hearing that story is that, I mean, you're like, you're, way past your prime of racing you know and there's so many people that you know they get into the or they aspire to be racers and they aspire to get into the industry to to race and be this famous guy but it's like you've got this condensed window of extreme fame and then you've got this really extended period of just like nothing at all like you're just not even in the conversation so then you know it seems like a guy like yourself you've been around for so long and then you've maintained you know that level and and you'll be able to do it for a a long time still to come and and i think that it's cool in the kind of game that you're in is like you'll just continue to get better like you might not get faster as a rider but in terms of the testing and the feedback and the knowledge like it's such a specific knowledge that compounds over time so it's like even you know to look at the to go back to you know having to give up those racing opportunities it's like how long do you race last as a racer as Chris Kiefer if you did do German Supercross, you know, versus how long you can be the guy that you are in the industry now? Actually, you know, that's a great point because for me, you know, all these guys racing careers, that's a short window. And then when these guys are done racing, not all of them because some of them make mass amounts of money and they can do what they want to do, but the guys that don't make enough money they want my job mm. after they're done racing because they still want to be able to uh, ride a dirt bike, get paid, uh, be able to get free product. 
and still be within our industry. So for me, um, having my life structured the way it was, I was always a hustler. So like, yeah, I don't know how old you are, but like I go back to where I had to actually write resumes and I went, you know, to these local shops in the Dez say, Hey, will you help me uh, get to the race? I'll do X, Y, Z for you. Um, but if, you know, for this amount of money, um, handwrite all these things, wait by the mailbox, you know, hopefully you get something back. Oh, I got 60% off. So, um, always looking for ways to ride and race a dirt bike. And then I got an opportunity when I was a, I was a shipper back in, um, I don't know, in high school at this place called Al Baker's XRs only. And it was just a oh, shop yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that sold X. Yeah. Yeah, so I was shipping there, and then um, Carl Kramer from Dirt Rider came in and said, hey, I, one of our photo models got hurt. Do you want to be a photo model? And I was like, yes, because I was up his ass every single time he was in there. I would ask him, like, hey, man, you need someone? He's like, nope. You need someone? <laughs> nope. Finally, he said yes. Um, I made sure I did a good job, and that just kind of snowballed into leading you know, this testing life that I had. And then Yamaha saw that I could actually evaluate um, Ed Scheidler at the time was working at Yamaha as the R&D manager and and he would actually screw with me like he would come up to me and say all right go back out I'd go back out and I go man Ed I just I don't feel anything I'm, I apologize man like I don't I don't really feel anything different he's like okay good I didn't change anything dude that so I was gonna I think, say that's the ultimate test of a of a good test rider is when you cannot change anything and send someone out and then they got the balls to say I didn't feel anything I feel like that's like the biggest thing in a test rider yeah and sometimes you know they do change something and you still don't feel it but you just got to be honest right yeah. and that's all they care about these engineers and all these developers they just want you to be honest and he saw I wasn't some you know 17 year old you know punk kid that just wanted to get a free dirt bike you know and um, and he would constantly do these tests to me to see if I could actually test for Yamaha. And I remember driving into this one test. Dubok was one of the test riders at the time. So I was super nervous and um, I knew he was an established guy and I was this young kid coming in and Ed pulled me in the box fan and goes, um, I know you do stuff for Dirt Rider Magazine, Kiefer, uh, but we've heard you've been talking a little bit. Uh, you just got to sit here and tell me what you said so I can kind of put out this fire. You know, I just tell me what you said, Chris. And I'd be like, Ed, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I there, I promise you that I did not say anything. And he'd be like, look, I got the Japanese sitting out here. It's going to be a waste of a day. You just got to tell me what you said. And I go, Ed, I promise I did not say anything. And he puts his arm around me and goes, that's what I like to hear. I'm just testing you. Make sure you didn't say shit. Let's go test. And I'm like, <laughs> God, it was just all these little tests all the time. Yeah. Like, so I was always on my toes and, uh, yeah, that just propelled me to, you know, I think this is what I want to do. And then I started slowing down with races and just started testing more. That's so sick. So what kind of, what, what did riding look like for you as a kid? Like, when did you start? What kind of riding did you like to do? Were you always a dude that wanted to make a track? Were you the kind of guy that liked to ride it? Just go and ride in the desert. Cause I think that there's like <laughs> specific types of people when it comes to that. Uh, I was a soul rider, dude. Like I really, all I wanted to do is uh, every day after school, my job was to do a square of weeds. After I did some weeds in the property, my dad said, you can go ride. And then I would go to these sand tracks near my house and ride. And then of course, when we have rain in Southern California, that was the, 
the best time of my life. That's like Christmas morning for, for me. So I would go make new turn tracks every time it rained. So um, that's how I grew up, just riding those turn tracks. And I think that's why people are like, hey, Kiefer, you're so smooth. Because I just rode dry, hacked out shit all the time after yeah. school. And I never yeah. really went to a practice track, you know, until I got my license. And then my dad put us, um, put me and my sister in off-road racing. So I rode uh, like National Hare and Hounds. I rode Grand Prix because it was cheaper. The cost was a little bit, you know, uh, less than a motocross race. Uh, the people in off-road racing always, and to this day, I still say this, is yeah. the people in off-road racing are just more down to earth, Yeah, you know? They're not out looking to, you know, cut you or, you know, talk trash behind your back and get somewhere. So that's basically how I grew up, just riding from a yard in the desert and then riding off-road. And then about, I don't know, 15, my dad decided, hey, let's try motocross. And I took to that a little bit more. And then, yeah, we just did that until I was about 18. And then that's when he said, like, look, hey, you're going to have to start helping us out with some some funds if you want to go race. So. I had a five gallon bucket of pennies and quarters and dimes and shit. <laughs> and I would go to the bank and get bank rolls. And then I would literally go to sign up at these motocross races with a Ziploc baggie full of change. And that's how I would uh, pay for my races. So Dude, that's so, crazy, man. That's so sick. So what was the first bikes that you rode? Did you always have motocross bikes or? Uh, my very first bike was obviously just a PW50. And then I, um, got a yz80 yeah and uh when i was on my yz80 we had like a two and a half acre property and my mom was in a wheelchair so what i would do uh to practice starts and off-road racing it was always dead engine starts and this just came to my mind while we were talking about this was i would wheel my mom on top of this uh we had this gravel pile that was supposed to be a driveway into our concrete but my dad just let it sit there for years and never did shit so I'm like, I would make jumps out of it and bicycles. And so I would wheel my mom on top of this gravel pit and the neighbors would be like, what in the fuck is this kid doing with his mom in a wheelchair sitting on a top of a gravel pile? But my mom would actually hold a rag and then drop the rag as like a flag start. Yeah. So I would do these fucking starts all around the house and just burn laps on my YZ80 in the house. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. That, that's <laughs> fucking unreal. So you, that, like, so then you, you had like a, it just backed onto the desert and then you could just go and ride. Yeah, just back to the des and went riding and then uh, riding 125s for a long time and just did the off-road thing on the 125 for a while and went back and forth to moto and, and through my teenage years, like high school, man, I was, I was riding, I was riding a lot like after school. And then I just started really screwing up at school. My mom's like, you're really doing shitty at school. So why don't you get uh, like independent study? And then I went to independent study, graduated early. And then, man, I was looking for jobs and doing these little shipping jobs at XRs only. And I worked for Larry Rossler and shipped for him and kind of just got that my foot in the door at these local shops and that's when I met Carl and uh, started with Dirt Rider just as a photo model and and that's how I kind of got into Yamaha and, and that led me through my teenage years and still racing local things and wanted to do Supercross and I started getting a little bit more money because I got these test jobs and yeah and this kind of led me down this path like later on in my 20s where I just was working a lot and never really raced a Supercross race I'm like dude I feel like I could race you know yeah and then I didn't enter my first Supercross until I was like 29. Dude, that's gnarly. <laughs> yeah, so 2004 was my first full year at Supercross. 
No way. And uh, yeah, so I was 29 years old. It just that's the kind of path my life, you know, led me to. I was just always testing and working and and doing something that I could keep up with just riding portion of it, not let alone, you know, traveling to Supercross races. So um, yeah, it's uh, 29 years old, race Supercross. I was on a KTM team because. Uh, Ryan Raglan at KTM R&D. I think Sle- you've had Sleater on here before, yeah, and yeah. Rags was um, Sleater's boss for a while. So before Sleater got there, I was there doing stuff for Rags, and he's like, yeah, I'll let you have a, you know, we'll build you a good engine and go race, and, and that's what kind of led me to racing Supercross, and all because of Rags, you know, because he let me go take time and do these things. Dude, that's so cool. So we'll go back a little bit before we get into the Supercross stuff then. So, like, what was the first yeah. bikes that you... Uh, no, actually, before that even. What did you do to your own bikes testing-wise? And, like, what was your original inspiration to start, like, messing with your bike and, you know, like, learning that whole process? Yeah, so I would... Uh, I'd be in the garage and I would do basic things. I always wanted to know about tire pressure. So I would put, you know, coming from off-road, I always had to run a lot of tire pressure just so I won't get pinch flat. So I'd run 18 pounds and see what that's like. And I would go ride and I would come back. And again, what was cool about being a Sperry is I can actually go ride, do a five-minute moto down the road, come back, change things in the garage, and then go ride it again. So it basically started out really, you know, just vanilla stuff like tire pressure. I'd go two clicks in on my compression and I would see if I could feel that. And then uh, I would rebuild my top ends in my 125. And would I feel any difference when I got a fresh top end? Is it any, just stuff like that. And then that evolved into my dad would get home on the weekends and I'd be like, hey, would you go do something in to my suspension? Don't tell me what it is. And I just want to go ride it and see if, when I come back, I give you the right feedback. Did I go the right way? And so I, he would write down these little tests for me to go do on the weekends, and that's what I would go do. I would leave from the house, write it in my little notebook that I still have to this day. That's me and my kid were going through some stuff, and I still got. And um, yeah, so I would just write it down, and he would say, "Yes, you passed this. You missed that." And that's kind of how that started. And what was the what was the original inspiration for that? Because I feel like that's a pretty weird thing for a kid to get into or want to get into uh so in my bedroom um when i was 10 11 years old i would just hang these i would tear these sheets out of test riders and motocross action and dirt rider and dirt bike magazine and i would see rich taylor and all these guys getting to ride these new bikes and i would see stickers on their helmets and i'd be like dude be so sick to be a test rider in one of these magazines I actually cared more about that than I did actually want to be a professional racer. Mm. I just wanted to ride dirt bikes. That's That was the goal for me is just riding. I loved riding. And so then when I started getting a little bit older and getting close to, you know, to driving and things and I knew my parents didn't have money, I'm like, how can I be able to do this without being a racer? So I just always looked on my walls when I woke up in the morning on my waterbed because everyone had a fucking waterbed when I was (laughs) 13 years old, bro. (laughs) And uh, that's basically was it. I saw Doug Dubok and Rich Taylor and these guys in the magazines, and I just wanted to be one of those dudes. That's sick. So have you ever thought or put much thought, this is like the deep shit coming out in my head, 
But have yeah, you I ever it. bring it? I love deep shit. Have you ever thought about why you just fucking loved writing? Because I was the same. Like every single, like every chance that I got, we we weren't lucky enough to have like us. We couldn't really write out of our house, so I had to wait till Dad got home. I did all the chores. I did everything that I could do, and then hope that he got home with enough time to take us down to a track. So, and I just was obsessed, dude. And then while I was like doing my chores and I finished all my chores and then I'd put in like dirt bike videos and then I'd watch them and I'd be watching dirt bike videos with my shit pack trail, but the whole thing ready to go. And then dad would come home and he's like, nah, sorry, it's too late. I got to do this or yep, let's go to the track. And it was just all I gave a fuck about. And then as soon as I got a license, I went to like tracks every single day and I was never even really like that good, but I just for whatever reason i was just completely obsessed and i just i've spent like a great portion of my life since then wondering why i was so obsessed with something that i wasn't necessarily that good at so i just wonder if you've got an answer to that well i i have my own answer and i'd be curious if you actually came up with yours yet but for me and this goes back when i was put on a 50 when i was like five or six years old I don't remember shit about being six years old, but I do remember this. Yeah. I remember when I first, first my dad put me on a PW and I rode around the house and I got a little whiskey throttle and I hit the camper and I started crying and my dad's like, well, if you want to keep doing this, you better get back on or else we're going to sell this thing. I got back on, didn't crash the rest of the day and I just remember this feeling and it's crazy. I, I've never been asked this question, but it just came to me. I walked into the garage and I had, you know, just, I, I forget what kind of gear I had, just old school shit and like quick straps and just was super ghetto. But I just remember having the feeling inside of my stomach that was like, that was the most fun I've ever had and the most, just the freedom of yeah. being able to do what I wanted to do within a space, right? Because obviously you're six years old, you can't do shit without your parents, right? But yeah. I felt like I didn't have any parents or anyone to talk to or answer to when I was on a motorcycle. Yeah. And that feeling just kept going until my teenage years because when you're a teenager, you're rebellious, mom and dad don't know shit, whatever. I get on my bike, all of that just goes away and I thought about, okay, how do I hit this corner faster? Can I jump this? You jump something for the first time. Like, I mean, you know this, like, let's say you jumped a double or this thing out and wherever you're riding before your buddies, that fucking feeling stays with you for weeks. Yeah. That it stays with inside of your stomach and your head for weeks. I don't know how many times I've driven back from a track and thought about the rut that I hit so good, yeah. that feeling stays inside of me for the whole ride home. I'm on the phone in a great mood, all because of a fucking, some dirt and a knobbies is yeah. what creates this feeling, right? I've never, I've, I've dabbled and I smoked weed twice in my life, never done anything else ever. Don't drink, my wife busts my ass because I don't drink, but this is, this is my alcohol. This is my drugs. This is, I feel like this is why I'm here. Yeah. Like this is it. Like that feeling, I want that feeling all the time. And it, that feeling doesn't have to be winning. You know, some guys want that feeling for championships and winning. Hell man, I just want to get that feeling hitting a rut. I want to get that feeling hitting a jump. I want to whip it or do something. Even if I'm 60 years old, if it looks lame as hell, 
it might feel bitching yeah. you know that's why we do it yeah you know i feel like that's the reason yeah i i mean i echo so many of those thoughts around it and and it, i it's funny i was literally in the shower this morning and then i randomly like you said that that feeling stays with you so like the last time i rode there's this little this track we got griff's gonna know what's up here there's this little s section that you kind of go through and the second right i had roans who he's one of our content guys here and uh so all the boys at work here we all ride and uh roans was behind me in this rut and i just fucking nailed this s section like out of control and i thought to my i was like dude i i squashed that thing like that i don't think i could hit that any better and then Rones, when we come in, Rones is like, holy fuck, you smashed that S section. That was three weeks ago. <laughs> and I thought about it right. randomly in the shower and like that feeling of yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's stupid. Like it sounds stupid if you don't know, but you get it. But that, uh, that what you explained of just being young and then having that freedom, like, and I talked about this with Colby Raha, like we had Colby on the other day. And yep. I mean, like we grew up in a real fucked up area and there was a lot of same shit, a lot of drugs, a lot of like fights. Like I, I was talking to my chick the other day when we were walking down the street and she said something about it, like being safe. She's just moved here. She was like being safe. I was like, yeah, we're safe here. And I was like, that's not what it was like when I grew up. Like we got jumped. Like we just literally would be walking home from school. Dudes would run out and drop their bikes and then they'd just fucking flog you you know so that that's like the environment yeah. that we grew up in a constant anxiety constantly watching your back and just always worried that something somewhere was gonna go down and i think that that's the thing that just pushed me to bike so much like i and you know home was safe everything was dialed about like the home situation but it just felt like the environment wasn't dialed something about just getting on the bike just made me not think about any of that shit none of the problems at school none of the problems of you know like the area that we're in the people that we're around and it's just this constant thing of and i remember it from like just a super young age even just that that feeling of you're you're the one that's in control like it's only you riding the bike and i think that that's where like a lot of people's anxiety comes from and i think that brayton actually gave me a book on anxiety and it's uh basically the way that the guy defines it is that anxiety comes from feelings of wanting to control something that's essentially not in your control it's a very basic definition but Mm -hmm. i think it's like it pretty much covers what it needs to cover and i think that that's why the feeling of riding is so special is because you're in control completely it's this explosion that's between your legs and then the rate at which it explodes is controlled by your right hand and it's really just that simple and it's like i really can't think of many ways that you can give a six-year-old complete control over their life and then it's almost there's a this feeling of i don't know like empowerment that you feel that an adult has given you this explosion to write you know there's just not many like a dad my dad would not even give me the tv remote (laughs) that he's given me this buey 50 (laughs) you know so it's like i think i think i just completely agree with what you're saying you know like there's just such a crazy level of freedom and control over your own existence and then that is linked to then that feeling of hitting a turn hitting a rut winning a race like there's all this auxiliary stuff that you know people can find meaning in those different areas of it but yeah i think that that baseline deal and i mean look at j-law dude like he still rides 
of all the things that yeah. he's been through in his life and i mean i know a bunch of stuff about him that that i wouldn't share but i mean he's been through like so much shit and what does that dude still fucking do right you know right. so like there's that here's the thing too like it, it it's a special it like i i have like travis preston he's one of my good friends and he is he was a supercross champion yeah. and he still loves to ride dirt bikes you know he still he works in our industry like he still loves it so much and just like what you said like we're men there's a lot of other fucked up shit that we would rather do like it's great like yeah. i would rather be doing this but then once you're do once you're riding a dirt bike all of that stuff doesn't even matter you're like i'm into this right now this everything else can just wait you know yeah no it's cool yeah so it's cool to hear yeah the i guess the way that you describe it because I, I really feel the same way and it's sort of it's been just been like a, i said it the other day for something i've just never even really looked that far outside and then i i think at times i did kind of look to do shit outside i mean i had a long time where i didn't ride um but then yeah once i kind of got over those blocks that were going on there i just was like dude you're an idiot like you should have been doing this the whole time like this is the this is the move you know you know it's crazy jace is like i'm 40 46 now and i would if you would ask me this 20 years ago i was like yeah you know when you're 40 it'll probably die off a little yeah. bit i won't be as into it uh holy shit man like i am i'm more embedded and into it now and those feelings haven't died off like those feelings that me and you just shared like i'm excited when you're talking like i get amped up just yeah. like when you're talking about that s corner in the rut like i'm here with you because you, you ex i know exactly what you're talking about like you know it, it's i don't know when that is going to die down and people are like i can't believe you still like to ride Kiefer. like yeah dude you're getting over it yet like you ride so much and i'm like Honestly, like I get times when I'm burnt out, but it literally, if I'm home a week and I don't ride, I'm an asshole. Yeah, like yeah. I gotta do, I gotta ride a dirt bike. Like yeah. I gotta do it, you know? So having my kid, I think just reignited that flame even more because he's doing it. So it's like, it, it hasn't died off. Well, it's funny. Uh, Slater, he, he wrote a thing on his Instagram. I think he did a podcast about it as well, but he talked about the fact that if you were like a 42, two or 46 year old guy that worked in a corporate job and you did triathlons people would look at you as like a fuck whoa what an inspiration you know like this guy's out here and yeah. he's running a marathon at 46 and he's got a job and a wife and kids and blah and he still makes the time to do that but then he i guess he obviously feels like people look at him racing and you know still doing his thing with dirt bikes is like this dumb kid that never grew up and is just playing with his toys and uh i think that's like that's definitely a message that I, I feel like if that if people take it away from this podcast that you should ride once a week <laughs> like it really to me that's like almost yeah. a non-negotiable in my life at this point is that i just ride once a week with my friends you know and it's like you shouldn't feel those pressures of people looking down on motos like when are you gonna grow up man when are you gonna stop being a kid because it's the same shit like there's a lot that goes into being able just to ride a dirt bike one day a week that like there's a lot that goes into mm -hmm. it you know you've got to maintain a certain level of fitness you've got to maintain a certain level of you know maintenance to your bike there's a certain level of time management you probably to get away from your wife and kids for a day you're probably going to have to really make that up on the back end which is probably going to force you to be a better person through the week so it's like and then to do yeah. a race 
you know, to, to put in probably double the effort that you normally would to then go to the gym to supplement the days that you're not riding. It's, there's really no difference between being that corporate guy that, you know, gets celebrated for running a marathon than being a, a, a guy like us that then goes out and does a, you know, an Australian vet championship or the Queensland titles or, you know, some kind of marquee race. And I think that uh, hopefully that, that stigma can kind of change. And, and I mean, I'm excited to ride well into my forties and fifties. And then hopefully I've got some kids that are doing it too. Like, for example, me and my dad and my brother, we just went on this ride with, I think that we had like 17 bikes and we rode, we did two and a half thousand kilometers on dirt bikes to the tip of Australia and back, like carrying bikes across rivers with sticks through the wheels, dirt roads, 140 kilometers an hour, tight single trail. I had massive cartwheels. Like we lost three bikes for, you know, mechanicals, like one KTM shit, a gearbox. My brother did a fuel pump, you know, we're like Sammy melted his rear brakes, like literally melted his rear brakes on his gas gas 350 because the nut vibrated tight and like started <laughs> going down on the, on the rear brake. Down it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's like I did that with my dad and he's 60, you know, and that was like one of the best things I've ever done on a, on a dirt bike. And he's in his 60s still doing it. So it's, uh, yeah, I just, well, I don't see a reason. That's an unbelievable change. point. No. And these things that you talk about, these people and to Sleater's credit, that makes really good sense. Cause you know, triathlons are accepted cause it's normal. Dirt bikes are a little bit outlawed, you know, so people look down on you. And I, and I see people in high school, you know, every now and again, like, man, you still ride dirt bikes. I'm like, yep, yeah. still riding dirt bikes, trying to make a living at riding dirt bikes. And your adventure that you just did with all your buddies and your dad, like what other form of motorsports yeah. Can you do that? I yeah. mean, sure, you can all go hike in and, and backpack in and do all that kind of thing. But motorsports, like you can grab a, a motorcycle with all your buddies, your dad at 60, yeah. still do all these things, create memories. Like this is not just a ride. This is shit that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and you're doing it with people that you love and want to be around. Like that, it just like we're talking about going deep and deep and like this to me this is deep like this is not just hey we're riding dirt bikes okay let's go home like this is like creating uh embedding a life you know bond with your friends and family yeah it's crazy yeah i think it's like it, it gives uh and you like you want to talk fucking deep it's like the deepest question is like what is the meaning of life and it's like those mean like those things that i think that's the shit that gives you meaning and like with you and your son riding together like that's what gives you me like that's what gives your life meaning you know you take you take those things away and it's just it's not the same thing you don't have like the same like level of substance and i feel like you can really like you can make your own meaning by doing those kinds of things and you can choose to and I, I feel like I can speak for Salida when I say that you know like there's a lot of meaning that is in that for him like, and I look at I look at him because he's, he's a friend of mine like I see him he lives in the same town and I see him very often okay. yeah. and um, I see like the example that he is for his kids and I, you know there's there's like a lot of meaning that can be generated through something like this and yeah it, do, it is a bummer if if there are people out there that would look down on something like that, but then I guess they're just missing the juice, you know? Absolutely. Like I, my son, Aiden, he's at the, you know, 16 years old, he's racing and he's got like some support and things, but 
Heather and I, we use racing as how to be a better man for him. Like yeah, responsibility. Yeah, yeah. There's things that he has to do. Um, I use motorcycles as a tool for him to become a, a fucking good human being. Yeah, yeah. Not just, I, I want to be fast and make money. Like, sure, if that happens, that's great. But dirt bikes have created a life for me and my family. And this could work out for you if you do it the proper way. But if you come out of this and you have a corporate job or if you have a nine to five, guess what? You have dirt bikes in your back pocket that can, you can go out your one day a week and that's your therapy session, man. And then it gets yeah. you to center so you can last the rest of the week in your shitty fucking job, right? Yeah. So for me, this is what dirt bikes, the power of dirt bikes can do. And that's what we're trying to raise our son like, you know? Yeah, well, that, that's a massive thing too. I mean, that's what I said to uh, even Brian Deegan when, when he did the podcast and he's like, I said, what would you do, you know, with Hayden? I'm like, dude, double down on him just being a super good dude. Like create a really yeah. good human, you know? Like it's it's... I feel like it's easy to make a really fast dirt biker. That's that that recipe is with everybody knows that recipe by heart. Doing it is another thing because it requires a lot of hard work. You can't, you know, you could give a kid all the money in the world and he could just not give a fuck. You know, I know so many guys. I know so many kids that I grew up with and they had a farm and a bobcat <laughs> and bikes in the shed. And they just didn't want to fucking ride. And I was like, bro, come and live in my yep, house. Yep. Like, let's just do a house swap yep. because I will ride every single day. I'll build my own jobs. And then, you know, then you get a guy like Daniel Sanders who owns an apple farm down in uh, in Victoria. And literally the guy, you can't get him off a machine. You can't get him off a dirt bike. And then he's a Dakar. You know, he's like one of the best Dakar, you know, riders in the world. Yep. But... I, that was kind of like the thing to, to Brian is like just make a dope human like motorcycles and being a motorcycle rider it just gives you it gives you because I, like what I said before you need that adversity in your life to become great I think and there's no better thing with just built in adversity than motocross because you're just going to get knocked that happens down all the time yeah you yeah. just you can't yeah. no matter what level you're at you are going to get knocked down by that sport. And then it's through those things that you learn to become a good person. Even even if you don't get knocked down, you get second. Like there's a, you learn a lot more from your losses than your wins. And a lot of times in racing, there's, there's yeah. 40 guys on the line. One of them wins. So then there's 39 guys that have to learn humility and learn how to take a loss. And then when you're the guy that wins, even then you need to learn how to, you know, win with humility. And then you're a guy, let's say you get to the level where you're on a team and then you've got to learn how to be a leader within that team. But you also have to learn how to be a follower and how you have to learn to be subordinate to people. And, you know, so there's there's so many areas in, you know, in this sport or like this community where you could just like really hone your skills of just like being a dope human. I mean, how many people do you want to hang out with that are assholes? You don't want to hang out with assholes. You <laughs> want to be around positive, you know, good human beings. And that's what I, we, we tell Aiden. It's like, hey, man, being, being fast, dime a dozen. How many Southern California kids are shredding? Yeah. I, I go to track. I see all kinds. But take the helmet off. What are those kids like? Are they talkative? Are they going to shake people's hands? Are you looking the guy in the eye? Are you doing what you say? Is your handshake your bond? Like these old school mentalities that I was brought up with, 
you don't see that shit anymore. And let's say you're not as fast as Joe Blow, right? But you're a good human being and you have these qualities. The teams or the people are going to want to be around you mm. because you're easier to work with. You, you're a good human instead of being an, uh, this fast, super fast, maybe win championships type of kid, but yet you're just a nightmare off of the track. Mm. Like there's something to be said for having, the, you know, we like to call the Quan. If you watch Jerry Maguire back in the day, you, you have the Quan, you know, like yeah, you have yeah. everything you have. You're a fast racer. You're a good dude. Uh, you know how to speak. Uh, these things that these other kids I see in Southern California, I go, Aiden, cool, man. You posted a banger. How's yeah. your caption? What's your caption like? Yeah. Is it meaningful? Is it telling a story? Is it just like, bro, I shredded a corner. I got caught. Like, check the heat. You're like, okay, it's fucking old. Like, I'm over it. Like, let's <laughs> yeah. let's tell a story. Like, do yeah, something, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's crazy to see, like, what we're just talking about. It's what dirt bikes can teach people, pass down to your kids. I mean, reinvent yourself. I'm like, I am reinvented myself how many times? Like yeah, over yeah, the course yeah. of 10 to 15 years. And, and that's just because of dirt bikes. Yeah. So, and I mean, that's probably got a lot to do with you getting like that KTM support to race that first supercross season. You know, like the fact that you would a good dude that somebody wanted to help out, like gave you that opportunity at 29, which is like way over the hill to do your first supercross season. Yeah. <laughs> It's crazy to think about that now. Like when I was 29, I didn't even think about that. I was like, oh, I'm racing Supercross, West Coast, can't wait. It's going to be sick. And You're like, bro, you should be a like, team man, manager. I almost... <laughs> right. Uh, and I learned a lot. Actually, Ryan Raglan went on to, you know, do a lot of cool things with Stay Sick. And, you know, he was always a smart human being, way smarter than where he was at at KTM. And, uh, the, you know, the old, you know, goes back to, you know, he comes back to me, he's like, hey, do you want to try something different this weekend? And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And I rode this bike. I'm like, this bike's amazing. He's like, yeah, it's a big bore. You want to race it? I'm like, hell yeah, I want to race that. So uh, that's what we did in 2004 at one of these Anaheims. And I ended up pulling a whole shot and led for like half a heat race. What bike was it? battling with Ramsey. And, uh, dude, so it was, a, uh, it was a KTM 125, but it was bored out to like a 170. It was like a 170 kit. How did that work yeah. with the rules? So, well, they didn't know, right? I was a privateer, so no one's going to check me, <laughs> right? Because I'm not finishing on the box. So I'm just like, hell yeah, let's do it, Rags. Like, I'm in, right? So I go <laughs> oh, and shit. we go to, it's Anaheim 3, 2004. And they had the split start. I pull hull shot in my heat race. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm leading. And uh, well, before that, I was in practice. And DV was up there, you know, in the stands. And he was when I was walking up to the stands after my practice, he was yelling, big bore. Like he fucking knew I had a big bore because I was rolling insides and seat bounce and shit like no one else was doing. In the class. <laughs> and you're nobody. So that's when they're like, oh my God, I'm nobody. Like who the hell? Like literally, I remember the announcers, Cameron Steele and whoever it was at the time, like I was leaning for almost a full lap and they didn't even know who the fuck it was. They didn't even say my name. So, uh, so I made the main and then, the next weekend, we I think we we're going to San Francisco or something like, hey, we got to take that engine out. You can't ride that thing anymore because it's too obvious. <laughs> so then I went back to a normal engine and did <laughs> shitty. <laughs> uh, was there any fallout from that? No, none, dude. Like, I think I got 19th in the main because I crashed. And then, you know, it, it was awesome for me, man. I was stoked. I was like, hey, I let it. Uh, I don't care what size engine I was on. I let a fucking heat race for four laps. Like, I was stoked, right? That's so uh, sick. But 
yeah, so we went back to a, a standard engine, which was still good, but um, yeah, just quite didn't get the starts like I, like I did with the other bike. Dude, that's so funny. So you did the whole season of West Coast lights that year then? Yeah, I did West Coast, and then uh, going in 2005, we were going to do a 250 team, um, like 250 East and 125 West, and then that kind of fell apart. And so I just ended up doing some West Coast rounds, and then uh, my mom ended up passing away in 2005. So I remember driving to Phoenix and did track walk, a road of practice, and I remember calling my wife and just said, I'm just coming home. Like I just said, I wasn't into it. My mind wasn't into it and just didn't race that whole rest of the Supercross series because I just, you know, wanted to get my, my shit correct. And then that's when I started going up to Canada. I rode for KTM Canada for like three years up there and riding their outdoor series. And then Andy White was the team manager at the time. And I kind of did that for, for three years and uh, never really returned to Supercross. I dabbled in it here and there, I'd jump in, jump out, but never a full series. So once again, just kind of how my whole story goes, it was like I had a chance to do something, I got to do it, and then the next year wasn't always the same year. It wasn't mapped out for me to do the same thing. Mom passed away, got another job, and too busy testing, or went up to Canada. So, um, yeah, so I stayed up in Canada for three years with Andy White and KTM, and and just kind of did fairly good up there, top tens a lot, got a fourth place, and just continued coming home. Like, it was so weird, Jay. So. I was actually employed by Yamaha. I was in a Yamaha employee. So when I was test riding for rags at KTM about 2004, 2005, Yamaha offered me a job. And I, that's about the time when Heather got pregnant and I was like, I gotta get a real fucking job. Like I'm gonna have a family. Um, and KTM wouldn't put me in house. So I went to Yamaha as a test rider in house. So while I was at Yamaha in house, KTM said, Hey, do you want to race, you know, our series up here in Canada? And I'm like, yeah, sign me up. I still would love to do it. But I had to figure out a way to make it happen because back then you had to be there for Saturday practice and Sunday races. So what uh, I did while I was an employee at Yamaha, I took my vacation days around my flight, my flight arrangement. So I would take a vacation day, Friday, race Saturday, Sunday, fly home on Monday and while I was working at Yamaha this whole time. <laughs> how did how did that go down with them in terms of like riding another bike? Did they they obviously were cool with it? Uh for a little while. And then uh they caught more wind of it and then back then they pulled me into HR and they're like, Hey, you're riding another brand of bike on the weekends and I'm like, Yeah. They're like, um, yeah, you can't do that and I'm like, You guys aren't paying me on my own time. Yeah. You guys aren't giving me free bikes. Like, why can't I do what I want to do on my own time? Yeah. And it just, it st kind of stirred up some shit within Yamaha. And then they offered me like a little side deal. We're like, hey, we're going to give you X amount of bikes, but you got to ride these bikes on your own time. And after the KTM thing was done, that went down. And then I just took that deal and then I never went back up to KTM because... I was at Yamaha for a little over five and a half years and I had to like make sure I didn't screw all that up, you know, having a family and everything. So yeah, yeah right. just kind of, that kind of went away, but then, uh, yeah, that's, uh, so yeah. It, it, it's so weird. Like for me, like my, my direction was never like just black and white. You, you hear all these racers. Yeah. I raced a series just didn't go well. And 
you know, got a job with my friend at the, you know, <laughs> the, the oil refinery. And then I came back to racing. Mine was always, I was like hustling. I was trying to do stuff. I was always wanting to be on a dirt bike. So no matter what I was like working, racing, working, racing, working, racing. So it was always like that. It, it almost was probably would have been good for KTM in a sense for you to be riding other bikes, because if you were in the development team, to kind of get a gauge of what other people were doing and what other feelings there were out there. Because essentially when you're riding, like if I, like I ride KTMs and if I go right now and ride a Yamaha, like that'll be a different feeling to me. Like there'll be so much new sensory information and then there's either, it's either good or it's bad. So it's sort of, I don't know, it would seem almost like you're a bit of a rat <laughs> riding for KTM and, you know, like getting those yeah. different feelings from those different bikes. Yeah, especially I think that's one of the reasons why Yamaha kind of pulled me in at that time was because being in a corporation, the, the rules are so much different, right? Um, me racing for KTM on my own time, I think they didn't mind like, hey, how's the new Yamaha or what's yeah, that yeah. like? And they were more open to it. But man yamaha was just like nah we that's not gonna fly we can't do that so but it's it now now that i look back on it it's kind of like how i created kefir inc you know way back in the day it's just like it's it's i contract myself out to different manufacturers just to do their testing because it's beneficial for them to get these feelings that i have right yeah uh because they're going to learn more because I'm able to ride all these different kinds of bikes, you know? So. so what, what bikes were you first involved in testing? And then what did that kind of look like? Like what was your, what kind of feedback were you being asked to give? And then what kind of changes did they make based off, off that? Like, I guess, what did that role look like back then? Yeah. So I'll, I'll take you back from the start. Cause it's kind of like a, it's a little puzzle piece here. So, when I first started with a manufacturer, I was with Yamaha and I was part of the team with Dustin Nelson and Doug Dubach when the, the YZ250F come out. So I remember that era uh, and I, I remember be, Dubach being like the guy everyone talked about as like the test rider for Yamaha. Correct. Yep. And he was, and this is where I've learned a lot of my testing abilities through Doug. Doug was my mentor. Doug took me under his wing. Doug listened, um, he was patient with me. Uh, he believed in me and just, I have nothing but good, good things to say about Doug, but basically Dustin, Doug, and myself would go to these tests and we would have a YZ125. We would have a YZ250F and then we would go back and forth and figure out first and foremost, if the engine was good enough to be able to compete against YZ125s back then. And then once you knew that was kind of like, yes, it is better than a 125 because you were able to race those against 125s back then uh how can we make sure it doesn't bog so mm. that was a big thing back in the day because with the carburetor it would it would have bog so that was one of the big issues so a lot of the testing was based around how do we get it to have a good throttle response and not bog on certain jumps or on offs or what these guys are going to race so a lot of jetting was done and people might think, and Sleater probably can vouch for this too, is like you're in a box when you're testing for a manufacturer as a test rider. So you would think, oh, Kiefer goes to these tests and it's up to Kiefer and they'll give you a, Kiefer gives a direction and that's what they do. That's mm. not how it goes down. Like they already have 
let's say for instance uh, Honda and Showa comes out like they already know what direction they're going to go you're just kind of there to help them fine-tune that direction I haven't met and maybe Doug had more power but after all these years of testing I can kind of guide them in what direction they want to go but it's not like someone's coming to me within that manufacturer and going all right Kiefer which way do we want to go let's whatever you say let's do that mm. like that doesn't happen you know here's what we got test these three parts which one do you like better okay we'll go that direction we'll fine-tune around that but it's not just a free-for-all like you know hey Kiefer you got this engine spec that that's all mine like this is all me it's it's not all me it's the engineers right and I'm just fine-tuning that with the engineers so and it's in it for me too it's oh no, one more thing so yeah, like yeah. it's crazy too like you have like a, a haunt like the honda's been rigid for years the honda has a rigid feel like it's a stiff natured bike and i've i've done manufacturer production testing with honda for years but it's not like i have power oh hey man we need to go softer on the frame like they present something to me i give them my feedback it's up to them to change it or not you know it's not up to me yeah yeah so it, it's interesting to to be a part of that initial two-stroke four-stroke uh testing phase did you have any indication when you were testing those bikes that the two-stroke was fucked and that it was over for the two-stroke and then did you did you have any like was anyone predicting the downfall of two strokes in the way that they essentially just got erased from the map so the the Japanese at that time that kind of knew like the two stroke ban was going to come with emissions and things like that. Right. So they knew that was kind of getting a little bit tight. Um, but for me personally, I did not know that there would be strictly four strokes going to be raced, you know, in the next three to five years. When I hopped on the bike, I was like, holy shit. This is amazing. I can't believe this is going to be legal in this class. But again, there are some, you know, shortcomings with the jetting, the weight didn't corner as well. Um, and a lot of the riders at that time, I remember going to these tests and they're still preferring the 125 at the time just because it's what they knew. Yeah. Uh, it didn't bog. Uh, but once that we got that kind of under control, and they knew that this bike wasn't going to explode underneath them. Then that's when I kind of knew like, hey, man, this this era of two stroke is going to be over here pretty soon. Um, but I just remember vividly going to Los Angeles County Raceway, LACR, when I first got there, not knowing what I was going to test. And they roll out this four stroke. And, you know, my dad had an ATK and this, yeah. these these huge fat pigs of four strokes. So I'm like, oh, this four stroke is going to be a piece of shit, whatever. And I wrote it and I was like man it's light it's peppy um it has a lot of torque and it just really changed my whole outlook on where this whole motorcycle industry was going and and did you like are you one of the people that thinks that four strokes ruin motocross or four strokes ruin racing like that <laughs> that's like a whole camp and i just don't know if i'm in that camp but i definitely think that we've seen some pretty negative effects of almost like the four-stroke arms race it feels like to me especially when ktm really entered the picture and started doing what they were doing but did you re did you predict then or did you even have any inkling of like how much it was going to change the industry 
I did not know like pricing wise, like I think that's what people are freaking out over is you're just pricing out people that can ride dirt bikes with four strokes, right? Cause they're so expensive. Um, but I'm not one of those guys. I'm actually really pro four stroke and I'm not, people know me. I'm not really big on two strokes. Like I'm older now and I'm like, uh, yeah. these things are pieces of shit. Like yeah. I don't want to ride these things anymore. It's too hard to ride. Uh, but being that I understand how much money the sport costs. Um, I like that we have a choice still. I like that Yamaha and KTM are still making these two strokes. Yeah. If we went completely away from them, then maybe I would be more on the uh, F four strokes bandwagon. But since we still have them out there and they're still being sold and they're still so popular, and I don't know about where you are, but man, there's two strokes everywhere where yeah. we are here. Yeah. Um, for me, I still think that it's nice to have an option it's just like the same thing between Feld and World Supercross like I'm a fan I want to see more racing like I'm not anti oh WSX and all these things like I'm the same way with four stroke and two stroke there's more options for us like why do people get pissed mm. if you don't have enough money for a four stroke which I completely understand we have options right we have two strokes that are still available you can still get those um, Suzuki hell People talk shit on Suzuki. Hey, they haven't changed in since 2018. Well, you can buy a Suzuki four-stroke for five thousand mm. dollars. Like, there's ways to be able to have fun on a dirt bike, a new dirt bike, and the options are just are out there. And I still think that we need two strokes in this industry for the people that still want to get involved in our sport at a relatively low cost and a low price point for the long duration. Right? If you're putting a lot of time on a two-stroke, it's easy to rebuild. It doesn't cost as much, right? If you blow it up, it's not as much money. Hell, I suck as a mechanic. I can change a top end. Like, we mm. need that in our industry. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and I agree. And, and I don't think, I, I don't think that um, four-strokes, like, ruined the racing either. Um, like, I just, I've, I've, I often think about, Imagine if all these guys were still just racing 252 strokes. It just feels like there's these errors of professional racing that you kind of need to go through to keep the sport feeling like something is happening. And Formula One's a good example of it. I think they probably... Well, I mean, not really. Like, every time they change regulations, like, it really changes the championship. It changes the drivers that are at the front of the field. Um, and I think it doesn't have the same impact in in motocross but i just think we like moved to a whole new era and i think we don't really talk about like the carbureted four-stroke era as much as we you know that's not like a separate bracketed thing to the efi era but that was like a whole man that was a crazy era of those dudes going out there on carbureted four-strokes and hitting crazy rhythm sections and james doing yeah. insane on a fucking carburetor like that just seems like the most sketchy shit of all time like mad respect to those guys but it's like it seems like you know insane. it kind of pushed the sport forward i think that there's there's probably some issues now that we should probably start to look at with four strokes in in supercross because i think we've seen more injuries than we've ever seen and more guys kind of like going out throughout the season and um i guess a bigger disparity between you know the top level guys like how many times did we even see this year that ando and eli were just so much better than third and third is not yeah. even doing the same sport as the guy in 14th 
so it's like i mean there's probably yeah. some you know things to address but i guess overall i'm like i'm glad that the sport has kept going i just i wonder what's next you know and like there probably will be something cool that's next i do think we need to as far as racing goes i would like to see a, a displacement the displacement lowered and but it's just tough because manufacturers all of them are not going to get together and do that you know um, if we all were riding 350s in the premier class i think that would help our racing a lot um, i think 250fs are are fine i don't think we need to change that so much but man 450s on the racing level it's a lot of bike like there's things they're making the tracks easier when the tracks when you walk them you're like ah, i don't know if i'll to jump that like i've been on track walks with guys like great guys like plessinger and these guys like dude i don't even know if i'm gonna be able to stretch that out out of the corner and then, and then by the bolt. third lap yeah the, yeah wow and there's three out you're like holy shit man so if we lowered the displacement a little bit and built the tracks maybe slightly different i think racing will be better i think that third place guy will be closer i think our 14th place guy would be closer to, to that top 10 right um and on the consumer side of things i think i mean there's a lot of people crashing and 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 losing their lives at tracks that i've been to lately and i'm like most of them is on 450s and i think yeah. it's just these guys that we talk about the weekend warrior guys that they're not in shape. They're not doing the once a week deal. They're they're coming out and having a good time. And then one mistake is a really bad one, right? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of bike underneath you. So I've been preaching these things to vet guys. I go, hey man, you don't need a 450. It's not a dick measuring contest. Like it doesn't matter if you come in with a 250 cc four stroke, you're gonna be able to jump whatever it is that you decide you want to jump when you get there it doesn't a 450 is not going to be like oh i got the power now man like i'm going to hit this bullshit you're going to decide that when you get there anyway mm. so a 254 strokes plenty of power for you i don't care if you're 200 pounds and 40 years old i feel like you're going to be safer you still have a good time you'll jump what you need to jump and yeah man like i love a 450 don't get me wrong i love riding that's my preferred bike but i also know how how much work it is to ride one of those things yeah yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've heard me, but I'm like the 350 fucking of the, of the church of 350. Oh, the guru, the guy. <laughs> That's the, <laughs> I'm the church of 350. I attend every Sunday. And uh, and I just tell, I've, I mean, I've got a lot of DMs of people that have said that they've bought a 350 after the complete like heretic that I've come for them. But it's just the move. And I wish, like, can you imagine how incredible a yzf 350 would be mm. bro are you Dude. serious i'm i'm going to your church brother let's sing together because i've been praising this shit for a long time i'm like yamaha what in the actual hell why aren't you would sell every single one of those bikes like every single one it's crazy be insane. it's crazy that they don't do it the 250f that the current yzf 250 or yz250f however it said is absolutely sensational as a as a motorcycle the suspension is sensational the feeling of the motor is sensational the chassis is sensational cable clutch i really enjoy on that bike make it into a 350 and it would be the best bike oh. hands down that is i mean it would be insane uh, i guess the competition that you'd then see with with ktm but it's like, dude, for the for the, the average guy that 
for whatever reason, there's people that still don't want to buy KTM's. And even though the 350's there, mm. and I think that it's like it's by far for me the best bike in in their lineup. It's what I own, and I'll probably I've got a 2020. I'm probably going to buy a 2023. But it's like, and even that, I've got a 2020. It's three years old, and it's still unbelievably good. But there's so many people that don't want to buy KTM's for whatever reason. That it's like if Honda, Yamaha, Kawasaki, if they did 350s, man, it oh my god they it would change everything for so many people dude i i told ktm this and i've written about it in my articles and and spoke about it in the videos is like if ktm would just put some spring forks on their bike uh they would kill everybody in the shootouts uh the air fork technology has come a long way but man like you build a ktm 350 with spring forks match that up with a good shock it's game over like yeah. that bike is insane like yeah. that's the only downfall to ktms the ktms are reliable now they don't feel foreign anymore like you don't go on a ktm like ah oh, this feels weird it feels normal it's just the only thing that's holding it back a little bit is that air fork because it's a little pain in the ass to to kind of dial in so I, i'm with you man i you need to make up shirts church of 350 i'll yeah. buy some I'll, yeah. I'll help you here in socal we'll get on the board and the, like uh here's the thing i don't i don't want to say that it's never going to happen because i've heard rumblings like like hey don't don't always believe the, like hey we're not going to make them they still might do it i just don't know how soon they're going to be able to do it because um the japanese are a little bit behind a little bit from the Austrians. I think the Austrians been changing the way our market is getting, you know, being sold. Uh, people are changing their minds about uh, the brands of bikes and the size of bikes and how many they create for guys that want to ride off-road and moto. Yeah. Or you know, there's just so many things that KTM does really well um, that the Japanese is going to have to get on board, or they're going to get left behind. I just I don't understand why it's taken or like it's it's it hasn't even taken so long like they're just still not even considering it but it's like the the sales of the 350 should speak for itself like shouldn't the Japanese look at KTM and look at what they've done with the 350 and how many bikes they sell globally and just go like okay there's definitely a market for this and we're just losing we're losing people and the, then the thing that KTM does so well, and so I've got a TC125 2019 and I've got a KTM 350 2020. That's my, my bikes. Mm -hmm. I've got the new MX Tech A-Kit forks, like their uh, blackjack forks that they've done, the 49 mil, mm -hmm. and I've got their National Shock, and that's in both of, those, both of those bikes. And they handle unbelievably well. Like, I don't need anything else from those bikes but the thing is right is and i think that this is what the japanese don't understand once you lose somebody to ktm you lose them kind of forever because the wheels transfer over <laughs> yeah. the suspension transfers over every single part on that bike pretty much bar the motor like i got a new exhaust for my 350 i gave my old one to ronan who works here and he rides a ktm 250 so there's just like there's all mm -hmm. of these things that you know the japanese almost it's lost on them that they they lose so you're going to lose somebody because they've got a 350 
and then they're just you lose them for good like i got um i don't know if you know eli uh more from red bull uh brodacross yeah so like he that's that was him like he was on japanese bikes and then he went to ktm and got a 350 and then he was like i'm gonna switch it up i'm gonna get a 450 guess what brandy got he got a ktm so it's like they're just they're losing people because of this one bike and then for me now my off-road bike i'll get a i'll get a a gas gas 350 or you know like it'll be a 350 again so it's just mind-boggling to me it's like the sales are there the proof is in the pudding and you just don't want to make that bike and again yamaha has like the best platform 250 build that thing out into a 350 the ktms this year the 250 and the 350 share the complete same bottom end so that can be done and Mm. then you've got this whole new mark like i would i don't get any help from ktm so i would go and just i'd go buy one of those bikes you know what i mean but and it seems it seems crazy to me dude but i might uh i might be doing a trip to japan to meet with a manufacturer and i'm gonna try and be extremely persuasive <laughs> in my time with that manufacturer Look to make a 350 you, just make one for me at least <laughs> you right so i've been around the japanese engineers and dude they're and I've been around the Austrian engineers, but the Japanese engineers are some of the most smartest people I'll ever met in my life. Like smart, polite, great people, but the Japanese culture and in these manufacturers, it takes, it's, it's slow. Time. It's yeah. like behind yeah. the times. It just takes a long time for anything to get done, let alone a motorcycle, right? Like you want to be set up as a vendor or something. It just takes, there's so much red tape and process with just the little things i can imagine what it'll be like to build a brand new motorcycle right Mm. and i can tell you this like when they started hey we want to build the yz 400 that was in the works for a long time like honda had to do that first and that's what got them out of their shell right well honda's building this 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 bike we got to do something um and then that's what kind of raised them up and i think ktm will make that happen for the other brands i just think we're impatient because we know how good it could be yeah and so i guess like what's your opinions then of why the 350 is better for that average kind of guy like i'd say most most guys so like for my 350 is not slow by the way like so i've got a piston just we put a new piston in it like not a not a comp thing or anything i think it might have a little bit more comp with like head gaskets and shit and then it's got the mm-hmm. port and polish on the head. It's got a full pro circuit exhaust and it's been fully mapped and tuned on a dyno with a vortex and it's got 55 horsepower. Like the thing is awesome, but it's not, it, it doesn't give me the negative feelings that a 450 gives me. So I guess like, what's your, like, what's your pitch to the average guy on why they are better? So to be pretty just vanilla and simple it's it's crank mass it's the inertia of the motorcycle the inertia of the 350 feels more like a 250 versus a 450 the crank mass of the 450 and that inertia makes side to side movement acceleration stopping a lot more pronounced and heavier feeling with the 350 even though on paper it's literally i think one pound lighter than a 450 the the whole bike itself feels 
as light, and I still say this to this day, I think it feels lighter than a 250 at times because it has more grunt and RPM yeah. response than a 250 does, but feels so peppy and light that I don't get that overwhelming feeling that I get on my 450. When I'm, let's face it, I'm 10, 12 minutes into a moto, you're starting to feel it a little bit, 450, you're like, you gotta kinda tippy toe around some things because you know that you're getting tired. With the 350, it feels more bicycle-ish than anything yeah. else because I can just kinda place it and put it and, and do the things that I wanna do with it more than a 450. And you got a 20. The new 23 350 has more power. Like it, like when I went from the 22 to the 23, I was like, holy crap, man, it actually has some bottom in now. I don't need, you know, the Vortex anymore. I feel like for the average guy, like it runs clean, it has bottom in. There's plenty of power there. And the beauty of a 350 versus a 450 for me is I can be lazy in different areas. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like, if I want to, I'm tired, I want to leave in second gear, I don't feel like shifting. I'll just let that some bitch rev out because it'll rev very, very far. Yeah. Uh, or I want to be lazy in another area. I'm in third gear. I made a mistake. Oh, shit, I forgot to downshift. It'll lug pretty damn well for a 350. Like, I feel like a little fan of the clutch. You're right back in that me, the power. So there's just a wide parameter for a rider. You want to be lazy, vet guy? Sure. Or you want to be an aggressive, hyperactive, 20-some-year-old kid and rev the shit out of it? It does that as well. It just gives us riders more room to kind of work around the track. You can do different things. But I will say this. I'm guilty of the dick measuring thing as well because when I go race, I'm like, oh, I still need a 450. But I just ridden uh, 23, 350 with just a couple things like what you said, a vortex and a muffler. And I'm like, dude, I didn't rethink my rethink my whole program here because I feel like I can last longer, still get a good enough start to be competitive. I just got smoked by Mike Brown at Loretta Lynn's and he was on a 350 and that thing ripped off the start. Yeah. So it's like the 350 is, uh, is that ultimate, you know, machine that you, you know, you're pushing over here. And I just think it takes a little bit of coaxing, uh, for these older guys to kind of get on board with a new displacement. Yeah. And I mean, so I've said it a couple of times, but I feel fine in saying it. I got in 20, like last year, 2022, uh, so 2021, I got 40, well, it was like 45 or something plus DMs, like direct messages. And I screenshotted every single one and I saved them in a little folder of people saying that they'd bought a 350. And they were like, dude, you're right. Mm. Unbelievable. I can't believe I didn't do this sooner. Because for me, like, and the way that I'd explain it as well is I feel like there's some day like for me to go to a 450 to, to take a 450 the track and i actually just did like this massive rebuild on my 350 it had like 50 hours on it and i'd never done anything to it which i think speaks to the reliability of ktms as well um but i i took the thing apart my dad cerakoted the case at like the thing schmick and uh so i spent the time riding a gas gas 450 and i actually really really enjoyed the experience but I noticed that by the end of the day, like there was a time where I just had to pack it up. <laughs> like the track was rough mm -hmm. and I was tired. And it's like, if you don't pack this thing up, then you could be in for some fucking real issues. <laughs> and it's like the, right. the chances, I, I feel like the chances of me going to a track 
and like guaranteeing that I'll have a good day no matter because we're not blessed like Southern California where there's prepared practice track like every day you roll the dice you're either going to go to the track and it'll be fucking mint or it'll be the biggest box of dog shit you've ever seen in your life and for me the combination mm-hmm. of rolling the dice and having a 450 in the back of my truck and the biggest box of dog shit track you've ever seen equals I'm not enjoying riding my bike that day and to me it ain't worth the risk I only get to ride one day a week yeah. and it ain't worth the risk of going to a track and it being a box of shit. So I just like for me, even just playing like the odds game, a 350 is the move. So, and then I think the, it's probably like a, a, a oh, and then you definitely, I think for 23, they definitely made the air fork better. I wanted to get maybe your opinion on that. I feel like the, they only made the tiniest change to like that bottoming um, I don't know what it is at the bottom of the four or that's responsible for the bottoming, but it went from 20 mil to 40 mil. It actually made a huge difference. Um, so it felt better than it has in the past. But the I got the MX Tech National Shock in the back of my bike and then those forks. And this the difference is out of control to the point where I actually have to retrain my fear in my brain to like just mm-hmm. charge through some shit a little bit harder because I can because I never trusted I never trusted the front coming into turns with the air fork I felt like those little chattery bumps before a rut would always I went through a phase in like probably last year where I just I fucking couldn't hit an inside turn because I just could never trust that my front end would not just pop out and over a rut like as I was coming in yeah. and then on the exit of turns it was just so deflective in the rear and now i actually watched um ronan's brother ride my bike the other day and there was like a section coming through this sweeper and then there's a double that you hit going onto one of the straights and it was all chopped out and i still had like that little bit of hesitation that i just didn't want the thing to kick out and i saw how hard he was pushing out of that turn and i went back out on the track and did it again and i was like man so much more confident so if you can get the suspension dialed on those things then it's like I just they're an unbelievable bike but it wasn't until I rode the the Stark in Barcelona that I really understood okay. how that crank mass really reflected into mm-hmm. motorcycles and just how much it affects you on a 450 over every other bike like it's actually it was so in your face that it was like seeing like seeing something for the first time you just couldn't un- unsee it again you know so like I just went out. I've I've been kind of getting ready for the vet race that's happening here shortly, and I went back out on a 350 just to try a setting from my 450. And by the first lap, and I'm like, why don't I ride this these bikes more? Just yeah. that was the first thought. And I ride a shit ton. Like I ride all these bikes, and then I'm I get on this thing. I'm like, dude, this thing is such an enjoyable experience for me to ride, and I get that feeling that we were talking about earlier in the show, that excitement in my stomach. I'm like, dude, it's, it's really fun and peppy to ride and easy to corner and, and all these things. And, and just like you said, we had a spring conversion on this bike. Enzo did a spring KYB spring conversion. And that was like, I got the comfort back in my front end. I can, what we call them out here in Southern California, we call them dishes because we don't really get ruts. Mm. So there's little fucking dishes that we have to get into. (laughs) Right. And, having a spring fork, uh, helps me get into those dishes better than the air fork. And to go back to your question, absolutely right. Like 
WP has done a great job from the start of this air fork technology. It has gotten a lot better. Before you get on it, it was crusty, harsh, rigid. As time progressed, it got better. There's more comfort. The only thing that I don't like about an air fork, it's what we call out here, we call it track toughness. And in the, in the testing world, track toughness is, can I take this fork, this setting, Everywhere. and go to four different tracks yeah. and have it be good, right? And the air fork just doesn't have that crossover like a pneumatic spring fork. Pneumatic spring fork will be pretty close to that same feeling that you have at Glen Helen versus Fox Raceway or Paris. So that's where the air fork needs to be a little bit better. And the fact that if you're riding, hey man, I'm out with my homies riding four hours, you're building up air pressure at some point. So that fork is going to change. Granted, can everyone feel it? Probably not. Yeah. But it's still happening. And I get these emails. Hey, Kiefer, what should I do to my bike? Well, have you checked the sag? Nope. Yeah, yeah. Well, what makes you think that dude is going to go check his air fork pressure? Yeah. Like some of these dudes just want to hop on and go. So that's why I'm part of this 350 church. We need to start pushing spring forks. Yeah. So I'll be your hype man behind you <laughs> while you're praising the 350 side. I'll be like, yeah, air forks. And just kind of like air forks every like two or three seconds, you know, like, hey, get those things out. Spring forks and just kind of yeah. hype them up. Yeah. But they I've heard and I don't know if this is true. I've heard they're going to come with them here shortly. Really? Spring forks. Huh. That would seem mm, like, like a, it could be false. Could be fake news. That would seem like a. The thing that I wonder, and even me, I'm like, I ah, don't give up on them, guys. <laughs> like, I'm just being here shitting on it. But it's like, because I, yeah. I think about um, one of the things with KTM, and I always admire KTM for this more so than other manufacturers, is like the willingness to take risks that other guys won't. And, you know, I, I remember when the hydraulic clutch came out, then it was just this thing of... Um, you know it just wasn't that good for, for like a long time and then lo and behold yeah. 10 12 years later every manufacturer except yamaha is going to a hydraulic clutch and then yamaha even yamaha gives you the option to go to a hydraulic clutch and it took it being shit for a really long time for it to then get good and once it got good then it was the best and then they then people started you know like following suit because people wanted to have that and then even you know ktm this year with the quick shifter it's like that's not it's not that good right now <laughs> you know what i mean like it's kind of you can feel right. it it feels like a bit of a novelty you're probably switching it off when you're doing anything meaningful but it's like i love ktm for that i respect ktm for that and then it's almost like with the air fork i just don't know whether maybe maybe it's just one of those things where it's just not the move and you've got to do a Yamaha and you're like, okay, this is the tech, like the SSS, that's the tech. Um, but yeah, I mean, that probably would be a part of me that would be bummed if they stopped making the, the bike with the air fork, even though it's not the move because you kind of then lose the progression. Like what if it does become the thing? And apparently, apparently the cone valve air forks are unreal. And then the, the a kit, um Kayaba air forks are really good like i know jack miller's got um he's got he's got some version of a kit uh air fork that he really really likes so i don't think it's like doom technology and it almost seems like it would be a bummer if ktm just stopped doing it completely but for right now you've just got to get a different kit 
and and also too i will say this uh i was around when pds was yeah. i was still testing for ktm when pds was here and that's all i heard nope we're never going to linkage don't even ask never yeah. going to linkage don't ask about it we're never going there this is what we're doing this is moving forward eventually they gave in and their motocross models went to uh you know linkage some off-road models still have pds and it and it does work and i will stand by this day like some of the best stuff that i felt in whoops when i was doing supercross was some of this valve pds stuff back in the day because it it yeah. worked and yeah. people were saying oh you're crazy Kiefer." like it was it was shit in the whoops well it, it's not same thing goes with air fork i just think because i've tried i've been riding some hybrid forks some kyb um hybrid forks like what tomac and those guys are running the lsf fork it's it's part air part spring it's amazing it's unbelievable because you get the best of both worlds you get that that light bump absorption that that front end traction but yeah. yet if you want to smack into something really hard you have that air to keep it up yeah right yeah so and i've tried psf1 kyb and it's not as bad as a wp aer so there's something there whether they figure that out or they just say okay look let's just put pneumatic spring we know this works we're going to sell more motorcycles because that's what they're in the market to do you know so let's just do this i could see them going that route and then keeping some models air like they did with the pds system yeah yeah i will say this year that that was the one big thing that i noticed from the air fork so like my experience with air forks is you'd get no initial feel or plushness to like keep you like i'm a big front end feel right. guy right and and i noticed this when i i went road right like road racing for the first time i was just smoking front tires <laughs> like just all the way to the edge of the tires <laughs> they just like had nothing left on them and the guy that i was riding with was like geez dude you are really lean on that front tire and i was like i never really knew that and then when i went back to moto i was like oh okay i kind of feel that in myself now uh so yeah for me like i'm leaning on that fucker going into the into turns so much that like that's what i'm relying on to to give me that um to give me any kind of confidence and with the air fork that wasn't there unless you drop the pressures super low which you're not supposed to do like your pressures aren't supposed to give you any kind of feeling for your compression or like your dampening essentially and then so you drop the pressures really low. It's basically low. a spring rate is what the air is, right? Yeah. And then so you drop the pressures really low. You'd get back a bit of that initial feel, but then you just lose the bottoming. And then the feeling of just even like fl jumping a, you know, like a, a hill to flat or a single to flat, like nothing crazy. It was just like the hardest clang. And it, it felt like you had two metal bricks and you just slapped them together in your hands like that feeling. So there was no real way to get that happy medium. I went to the 23 KTM launch this year and there was one jump in particular where you just kind of like centered down this like long hill and I was just jumping it as far as I possibly could, landing rear wheel first, slapping the front down and it felt like a kit fork, more like the MX Tech stuff that I've got. And it was just with like a tiny change internally um so yeah like that to have that maybe that best of both worlds scenario like maybe that is the move then uh yeah sorry about that mate a few right. little, little tech issues no we're good i get it i think it uh i, I don't think know we, what the hell i was talking about here we just uh we just bookended the air fork talk um my next thing i guess was gonna be you you haven't had a chance to ride the stark yet have you the what the stark varg 
Oh, no, actually, I did not get a chance to go there. I was busy doing a test, and, yeah, JT ended up going for us, so I didn't get the chance to ride it, no. What was what was his feedback on that thing? I didn't watch that video. So, JT thought, you know, that, you know, he, he, he actually said, like, look, I wasn't expecting much, and I think that's a lot of people when they go to electric technology. They're not expecting a whole lot, and he wrote it, he's like, holy shit, man, I had a great time. Like, it's a ton of power. That's all he kept saying. He's like, I can't believe how much power there is there. Yeah. You know, so uh, overall, his his thoughts were like, they were all positive. And he had- CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I had a great time and he said that I didn't have to adjust my riding style or what I already knew to the Varg. Like I can just adapt that to it. And with me being with Alta for so long, you know, doing all that, that development back then, uh, I believe in electric technology, man. I have a great time. I still got an Alta at home. Me and my kid ride the shit out of it. It's awesome. Oh, I, I didn't know that you were involved in that at all. Yeah. So Alta reached out to me when, uh, they first started the project and I used to fly up back and forth to San Francisco and then test for them. And I was really early in the infancy stage of the bike, so it was kind of scary. I'm not gonna lie; like, didn't know a lot about electric technology. I learned a lot from the guys, but riding the bike early uh, when it was getting developed was quite scary because it would just shut off a lot, a lot of mm. error codes and things. And um, I remember just <laughs> telling my wife when I'd go fly up, like, "All right, there's life insurance. I hope to see you in about three days because I don't know what the fuck's gonna happen." And uh, <laughs> But what was what was cool about the Alta guys, every time I went up there and we had a problem, they fixed that problem. And although another a problem, another problem arose, uh, they would always fix it. And then we whittled it down to where the bike would never have any issues. Yeah. Um, and dude, it was a blast to ride. Like it was a blast to learn a lot about the electronic um, technology that's coming out. And for me, like some of the most fun times that I can remember is trail riding on these electric bikes with like three to five dudes and just talking shit while we're riding and saying, no, oh, you suck. You missed that corner. You did. And it just, it doesn't feel like you're on a dirt bike, but you got a throttle. You're hauling ass. You're, you're roosting. You, you, I mean, so it's, it's a great time. It's just going to take a long time. And we talked about the, the four stroke haters. There's even more of those in the E world. Right. So, mm. um, our our sport i don't know is quite ready for electric technology and and for me as well i think electric technology isn't quite ready for us because let's face it like heat and duration is the nemesis of electronic technology mm. uh that was one of the big problems when i was doing stuff with alta is like yeah, it's supposed to be 30 minutes and we have a full battery for 30 minutes, but it would last 12 minutes because of heat, the mm. dirt, you know, heavy dirt, uh, acceleration. It would just cause the bike to lose power. So 
Um, once they get that down and they can, people can actually ride it for a long duration period on a motocross track, I think it's really going to take off because um, you can adopt all of your riding, you know, technique and style just like you can on a on a combustion engine to electronic power. So it's, it's super fun. Yeah, yeah, that's cool to hear that you're part of that the Alta process. I I didn't know that 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 was the case. Um, and yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. There's there's a lot of people that just like aren't ready for it to be a thing. But from from my experience, like going there, I was I wasn't only able to adapt my riding. I was way better. Like it was easily like hands down the best I'd yeah. ever rode a bike. I just feel like taking a lot of the variables away. Like exactly what you said about the crank mass. Like I feel like after riding that bike, it really changed a lot of. I think it was probably like a good testing thing, you know, because it's like you have to go to extremes to understand something. Like kind of like when I went to road racing to then go back to the track, I could feel different things because it was just so completely like it was polar opposites, you know. And I think that I, that's what I took away from like the electric experience was um, I think so much of being a good rider is it just this predict predictions. Like you're essentially just yeah. making predictions uh, of what the motorcycle is going to do, and it's like real time, but it's not really real time. It's a you're ahead of yourself a little bit, whether it's a section, whether it's a straightaway, whether it's whatever. But but in the moment, you're making decisions of how to use the clutch, how to use the throttle, how to use the brake, all based off what you think the bike is about to do, and I think that. Mm-hmm as soon as you've got a motor in between your legs and you've got this rotating mass uh you've got all of these things to account for like gearing um clutch slippage like there's so many variables that then you need to take into account to like factor into the predictions that you're making um and i think that that was the big thing that i took out of the the experience with the electric bike is that you just took so many variables out of the equation which then made the predictions so much easier for my dumb brain to make (laughs) and it actually made me uh ride better and it made me realize a bunch of things that i actually do wrong uh on a dirt bike and i think the clutch was the biggest one like i overused the clutch in a massive way um on a on a dirt bike and on like a you know a bike with a motor so there was just so many variables yeah. that when taken away i could really realize how they actually impacted my riding and i think that for the again to talk about because i just put myself in the average category of riding you know to for the average guy like i was excited when i left there i and i i thought all right i'm getting two of these so my dad can ride motocross again Cause like my dad can't ride a fucking motocross mm-hmm. bike. He's 60 years old, you know, like I'm not putting him out <laughs> right. there on my 55 horsepower 350. So it's like, you can dial this thing <laughs> yeah. back and then you just take so much yep. shit out of the equation for him. And like, I could actually ride with my dad again. So yeah, I think that while there's a lot of people that are haters, I think that there's a lot of people that once they experience it, especially if they're in the average rider category, like I'd put myself in, they're going to be like, oh, this just really makes this a more predictable, enjoyable, safe experience. And I think that predictability equals safety on dirt bikes. Let me ask you these questions. So this is always asked people that start riding you know, electric technology. How many times was your finger out on the clutch when it wasn't there? I had the rear brake on my... 
Okay. Yeah. So but, I, when I first started riding the Alta, I was like always trying to put my finger out. I was doing that. And then how about the sounds that you hear that you normally do not hear when yeah. you're on your four yeah. show? Like you're like, what in the hell is that? Like, what is that? You know, that, that was crazy for me for a long time. Like, especially when you go on a fresh track and all the mud hitting the fenders and these things that you normally don't hear the tire skidding and the the flex of the tire. And I'm like, wow, this is insane to me. Um, But you're right about the technique part of it. For me, same thing. I it's hard for me to ride on the balls um, on the balls of my feet when I ride. Like I'm always trying to do, you know, do the rhino thing, unlock the hips, get on the on the balls of your feet and. When you have a lot of noise, it's hard to concentrate to do that. But for me, for whatever reason, when I'm on an electric bike, I can find the balls of my feet better. I'm calmer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have more concentration. Uh, so there's a lot of these things that I normally don't get riding a, a normal four-stroke machine than I do when I when I ride the Alta around the house. And and for me, man, it's it's just like what we were talking about earlier as well. It's just more options for everyone, right? Like mm. let's get people involved in the two wheels, man. That's what I'm about. Like I want people to ride off road. However it is, if you're on a two stroke, you're on a four stroke. If you have, you want to do some urban riding and Aiden and I do urban riding around the des. you know, we'll go down the street, head to the trails and like it, it's quiet stealth. Like it's yeah. badass. Like there's still a place for that. Um, will it ever replace the feeling of pouring gas into my bike and riding probably not but i still like it it's still fun yeah no 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 i'm with you the thing that i was doing so i was doing the 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 finger brake like the handbrake and i loved it dude i just that to me is the move and i would do that right now my 350 (laughs) if i could and yeah it was just that that same thing with you know you can be in the perfect technique you don't have to change gears which means that you sort of set and forget is how i'd describe it just get your feet in the right place you don't have to use a rear brake and you don't have to change gears so it's set and forget apart from a few little weight changes here and there of like pushing down you know towards your axle on the outside peg and you know little things set and forget just leave it there braking you're in the same position like even I know this is a technique that a lot of the um, I know a lot of the world championship guys do it I don't know how many of the AMA guys do it for motocross but a lot of guys are like really dropping their heels back on braking just to for extra weight um, so I mean that became a no-brainer because then you, you didn't even have to compensate by having like one heel down one foot on the on the uh, rear brake so yeah it just took like I guess I've just made it idiot proof, you know, and for an idiot like me, it, it seemed like it seemed like the move. <laughs> it is fun to ride. Like, like what you said. And, and after I rode it, you know, went up there a couple months and rode around. And then when they released the machine, um, they came down to Southern California and we got to test in, in the public. And I thought I was going to get a bashing from a lot of these guys locally, but man, a lot of people were open-minded, which was nice to see. And, but, it is quite funny and scary at the same time when you're on these local tracks with four strokes and two strokes and they can't hear you coming dude and you try to pass them it freaks them out because they're like holy shit like they didn't know someone was there and so if we do get to that point when these bikes are coexisting with other bikes there's got to be some kind of way to for safety to to let other riders know that these bikes are out there because you won't be able to hear them man and Mm. if you want to change lines or do something you won't even know that some bitch is behind you unless he you know he's yelling at you so i was always you know 
riding behind someone, I go, yip, yip, and just kind of yell a little bit just so they yeah. knew I was behind them, you know, so. Yeah, it's cool. I, I'm excited for you to ride a Varg, though. It's a, it's a, I haven't rode an Alta, but, like, from I'm friends with Hill, and we spent a lot of time talking about it. It's just, like, they're completely – it's, like, a massive, massive step over what the Alta was. Just everything that that – it's got the Brembo brakes. It's got the Kaaba fork and shock. It's, like, it's pretty ridiculous, the level that they've kind of taken to. So I'd be very excited for you to actually get to ride it. Yeah, that'd be great. I remember, um, so I was doing the Alta process. I would put up these videos and it was like mind blowing for people to see, you know, me riding an electric bike on a normal track and jumping the jumps and stuff. And then he'll actually DM me. He's like, dude, how do I get on one of these things? So I kind of put him in touch with those guys. And that's what kind of pushed that whole thing along. And that's I mean, epic. You've seen what he's done on that. Dude, he is insane on like the stuff that he does. I mean, granted, just on a bike period, but on that thing is, is, mind-blowing yeah no i can't i can't wait till people actually get their hands on them you know and it's like it's a bummer that um there's just it's probably the worst time in history to try and be a new motorcycle manufacturer right now with like covid supply chains like all of the all of the things that that company is up against right now um to just deliver on the orders and then the fact that they they expected to sell like maybe a thousand bikes you know and then they go ahead i don't know what it is but i'm assuming that it's over ten thousand so to go like 10x of what you initially thought you were going to sell and then have to deliver all of those bikes like i mean i'm i know those guys now after the you know the time that i've spent with them and the you know we're always kind of talking but I know they'll pull it off, but fuck, they just picked the worst time in history to try and make a new motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, because it should be, uh, they should be right around the time they're delivering bikes right about now, right? Yeah. Well, I think it was probably more like early next year, but it's probably going to end up okay. being a little bit, a little bit later, which is like, it's a bummer, but I mean like, fuck, how do you, how do you plan to make a thousand motorcycles and then have to make 10? Like, that's not, that's not a, uh. That's not a like we'll just speed up the production line a mile an hour over you know that's like we need a new factory like we need different completely different things than what we thought we needed so but I I, I know they're gonna do it yeah yeah like the Alta the there's their assembly line was super small like with the area that the, the bikes were being built and you know they didn't make a whole lot of them in a hurry so I can imagine man they have to have a, some kind of massive factory to push all those things out of there man yeah yeah so switching switching gears a bit we uh we talked about the suzuki's that you could buy a 250f suzuki for five grand i will say yep that bike is actually still really really good it might not be ama supercross ama motocross good but i tell you what i rode a 2021 that had the suspension done by charlie costanza it was actually his bike and he worked for the factory connection team he's an aussie guy worked over at factory connection for a while that was one of the best 250fs i rode especially like handling wise had like that really nice free revving kind of that's like the yamaha's got like once it's really up top and revving it just feels like free it doesn't feel like bound up and when you like chop the throttle it's not like slowing down a bunch on you it's like it's a really good fun lively motor i actually think that it's a shame that suzuki 
has like slowed the development but i also think it's kind of now almost shifted them into its own category of like the budget 250f and i think that if they maybe like switch their their messaging around that and maybe like push that a little bit more maybe even try to make it a little bit cheaper again like really separate it into its own category i think you'd actually see a lot of people riding those bikes because they're a really good bike still i just wondered if you'd kind of had any experience with them recently yeah so actually i've quite a bit lately i've uh rode the twisted t hep race bike a little bit i just did oh, yeah. over at racer x we do a garage yeah we do a garage build once a month and uh a guy that runs throttle syndicate he built a rmz 450 and then i just rode an rmz 250 not too long ago so i've actually rode a lot of suzuki's in the past down on four to five months and i concur what you say like i feel like suzuki's doing a disservice to themselves uh, because now that I know I can get a $5,000 RMZ 450 at a local dealer here and, I, and it's not like that everywhere I've talked to other people at other places and they're not quite as cheap but I'm guilty of shitting on them as well like I've shit on them a little bit saying oh they're not changing but now that it's been three four or five years and I've experienced the bike. It's still fun to ride, just like you said. I got on that 450. It turns like a son of a bitch. It's, it's reliable. People kind of shit on that bike as well as for reliability. I still, to this day, think there's pretty good reliability on those bikes. The 250 has good low-end snap. Like, it has a lot of bottom-end stock. I like that. It turns well. Uh, if you're a heavier guy, the RMZ 250 is sprung heavier, so you can ride that without having to screw with the suspension. There's just a lot of positives coming from a bike that hasn't been developed, you mm -hmm. know, in, in six years. Um, Honda even is trying to do something similar where they're selling their old one year old, you know, branded machines as a 23 model. So they're called RSs. So you're actually getting a 22 model, but for 23 for like a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars cheaper than you can for a 23. So they're still getting those out to dealerships. So. I think they've kind of picked up on some of that from Suzuki. We're like, hey, let's sell some of these old models still at a cheaper price and, and then create some more buzz about our motorcycles. And I don't have to create a new motorcycle every single year and hope that they all sell the whole thing. So they mm. budget their bike limit between uh, a 23 and a 22. And that way they still have, you know, all that stuff in the dealers and the dealers are still getting, you know, filled up on the showroom floor but i don't know man some of the some of the fault lies with it in us media you know mm. we're, we're always quick to say oh you know suzuki hasn't done anything or oh, we're not even having suzuki in the shootout folks all right because they haven't been developed in six years so fuck it yeah you know? so yeah some of that has to come come back to us we're like hey you don't need brand new technology man the Suzuki is plenty good enough for 90% of us out there. You're going to yeah. have a good time. And shit, you have $3,000 left over. Build yourself a nice looking motorcycle on your own time. You know, like yeah. put a pipe, get an ECU suspension, and you still got the money to do it. Dude, think about this is what my dad always said to us. Because like we never, when we were kids, we had stock bikes. Like we could never... We were never, we got our like suspension valved on a couple bikes, but that's it. We were only ever allowed to ride stock motorcycles. And dad was like, how much is a pipe? And I'm like, I don't know, a thousand bucks. And he's like, go and buy yourself a thousand dollars worth of brand new tires. 
learn how to change your tires and I guarantee you, you will be a better rider on a bike with fresh tires than a, and a stock pipe than a FMF pipe and bald tires. So like that was the thing. We just weren't allowed to, we weren't allowed to have any of that shit and we just got, we just had to run good tires. And I mean, that, that's probably worth a shootout right there <laughs> to see, you know, like yep. to do some testing yep. of like, is it faster to have new tires and a stock pipe or by, or the other way around? And a lot of people would go a lot faster with really good new tires and right tire pressures and sag. Oh, oh dude, 100%. Like, I think your dad and my dad could have broke down because my dad was the same way. Like, <laughs> hey, we're flipping your rear tire. Like, uh, this is what we got. You don't need none of that shit. Oh, there's a dent in your pipe. Shh, okay, we're going to weld it up. We'll fix it. Like, I didn't get new shit. You know, so it wasn't until I was starting to work in the motorcycle world where it kind of opened that whole aftermarket yeah, to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and then when my dad would spend the money, he would just read the magazine. Oh, so-and-so says to get this and we get it. And I'm like, it's not very good. Like it's kind of shitty. So absolutely. I tell guys all the time, man, worry about technique. If you want to lose some weight on your bike, how much do you weigh, sir? Yeah. Maybe 100%. Lose some weight on your own end. Yeah. Like lose 10 pounds of you yourself. Like that's going to help you, man. Like, um, so yeah, but I also have buddies that do not give a shit about what it runs guy. like as long as it looks good. <laughs> I'm also that guy <laughs> okay. in the same breath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I will tell my buddy, I go, Hey man, uh, he's like, Hey Kiefer, uh, I need some Dunlop tire stickers. I'm like, for what? He's like, oh, I just want to, I want to, I want to be cool, man. I got to have those stickers. I'm like, geez. Ah, so I'm like, come on brother. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I think you, to go back to, to bookend the Suzuki thing, like I think that that's, that's a really good point to make is that it probably does come back. It's messaging and it's branding. And I think that, I think that Suzuki might not even realize what they've got there. You know, I think that you put an electric start on that bike on those two machines and then you've, and you keep it at the same price. I mean, fuck, even if you can make it a little bit cheaper, like just do what you can to make that thing a couple hundred bucks cheaper again. And then you're killing it. Like rebrand it. This is the, this is the entry level motorcycle. Like, and I get a lot of people that message me that there's a lot of people that watch the YouTube channel as like an, it's an entertainment. Like it's a channel that they like to watch, but they don't actually ride. And I have a lot of conversations. Then they go to my Instagram, they message me, and then they say like, "Oh man, I'm actually like, I used to ride as a kid. I don't really ride that 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 much anymore. Like, it's kind of expensive. I can't really afford it." And I'll say to those people, "I'm like, why don't you look at getting a Suzuki? You know, like try and get into there's like there is a cheaper bike. It might not be like the new flash thing, but like that's a that's a good bike. And I think I think that Suzuki's maybe missing an opportunity. Like, make it even cheaper." don't develop it any more than put an electric start on it because that would be my piss off is that fuck i ain't kicking this thing like can't get out of town like, it's just not, <laughs> get, get the fuck out. come but, on you can't kick a dirt bike come on man i'm, I'm done bro i did my time <laughs> i've been kicking them for 30 years but uh but you know oh, i just man. i think they're missing an opportunity and then i i think that you know then it would probably if suzuki came to us with that branding 
and said like this is the budget motorcycle we want it this is the entry-level bike this is what gets people in if you're a kid in college and your dad stopped funding you racing and like you're out on your own you got to buy your own bike bang this is the bike you buy and if you're new to dirt bikes and if you've only just come in and you've watched this channel or you've watched another channel and you want to buy a bike bang this is the bike that you buy everyone gets a suzuki 250 when they start that's a great thing for the sport, you know, and then we can't talk, you cannot talk shit on Suzuki for that. And you cannot then, you know, be upset that they're not developing the bike. That's not what this bike is supposed to be. And like I said, it's a fucking good motor. I would own an RMZ 250, hands down. Absolutely, I'm the same way. So uh, I just said this on a video that I did last week. I go, look, I was guilty of this for the couple of years about bashing Suzuki. And then I've kind of switched my tune. I go, look, uh, sure, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but it has doesn't have a carburetor anymore, so everyone calm down. It has fuel yeah. injected. Suzuki was the first one to introduce fuel injection, injection sure. to motocross machines. Um, if Just what you said, Jace. If, I feel like if you can't kickstart a motorcycle, you might want to rethink yeah. what you want to do because <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're bitching about a kickstarter, we've done it. We've done it for years. Let's all just relax. It's okay. Sure, e-start is nice. I love it. I I prefer it. But I can kick it. And I did on the video. I said, watch this. One kick, boom, it fires up. Starts easy. Um, it's easy to ride. It invites people to learn how to corner. There's yeah. a lot of great traits with the Suzuki. And so I've been redirecting my branding so to speak when i do these videos is like look man same thing this could be your entry level motorcycle you'll have enough money left over if you are that kind of guy that wants to have the bling you can still do that you can it's custom you have some money left over in the bank your wife's not pissed off at you because you blew 14k like so there is some freedom that goes along with suzuki and that's kind of where i've been pushing it like don't just sleep on this motorcycle because if someone said hey uh, Kiefer, if it was uh, up to you, would you want to ride a Suzuki? Absolutely. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, hell yeah. Dude, I would do a couple things to the suspension, you know, maybe put a pipe on it and some handlebars, and I would have a great time. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've ridden a lot worse bikes than Suzuki's. So, uh, so one of the best bikes that I've ever ridden to this day is Mike Alessi's 2012 RMZ 450 race bike. That thing was unbelievable. Really? Unbelievable. Tell me yeah, about it. Yeah, dude. It was leave it to Tony Alessi to, to do some crazy shit because uh, <laughs> this bike <laughs> This I bike not only was smooth. Oh, uh, have you had him on the show? No, dude, we're doing it real soon. I, as you said that, I need to message him and like lock in the day. I was just with him in Melbourne. Bro, the we should have I went up to him in the pits. I've met him a few times before, but there's so many people I've met in the past that don't connect me to this and then he's like oh pleasure me right. i'm like oh we've actually met before he's like that was you so anyway we should have started recording as soon as i walked up and introduced myself because like i was like shut Tony, shut up shut up shut up shut up don't say any of this all of this save needs it, to get said it. on the podcast because <laughs> you are fucking brilliant he's like He's like, I'll bring my Alessi Weeklies. I've got every single Alessi Weekly printed and ordered yeah. in the entire career of Mike and Jeff. Like, he is on some shit. And I was like, dude, you're a fucking psychopath, but in the best <laughs> way that you could be a psychopath. Let me tell you something, man. Like, not to get off the subject. This is no, go off topic. But go I will off say topic. this. To <laughs> uh, 
uh, Tony Alessi. I've been around the the Alessis. I mean, they're they're high des. They're in a spare. Yeah, yeah. Victor Tony's Bill. right down the street from my house. Yep. So uh, some of I've ridden and trained with Mike and Jeff. Tony Alessi is out at the track prepping in the des, mind you, like their own facility and, and now Carson Mumford's facility. But 4 a.m. watering, prepping, getting shit ready. He is a hard working motherfucker. Like. Yes, what he did some weird shit with back in the day, of course. But dude, I'm telling you, you cannot sit here and say that guy didn't give his kids everything that they could have to be successful. He did that. And he's always treated me fair. Sure, he's off his fucking rocker, just like you said. Some of these things <laughs> that he does, like, holy shit, this is insane. But he's always treated me fair, super knowledgeable about the sport. Things that I would never thought he knew about me and my career. He knows. Uh, he knows how to build a motorcycle. Like when we talk testing, he knows these certain things. Um, I mean, literally, there was there's a piece of desert behind my house that's just it's just places people go ride and unload and go ride. He literally brought a dozer out there in the middle of a night, dozed this track for Mike, got the water truck watered this whole track that he dozed in BFE and it was like you went over this hill and it was like Jesus Christ laid out a, a motorcycle track <laughs> in the desert and this is where we would meet to go ride and this is the kind of shit that Tony did for Mike uh, several times I have so many stories about Tony and what he's done but you're right man this Suzuki that he had built for Mike that year and Mike was on his way to win that championship he didn't get oh. cleaned out and his knee was Dude, yeah. like he was shredding that year. Um, and that bike was a big part of it, man. I got to ride it and really uh, hone in on what he did. And just like you said, there's some weird shit. There was a, uh, uh, and you should ask him this because I have no idea what the fuck it was, but <laughs> it was a like a piece of wire hanging off of the frame by the down tube. And when I asked the mechanic, I go, hey, man, what is this like little nubby wire thing like glued onto the frame? Like he's like, oh, I can't talk about that right now. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, bro, we can't talk about that shit. And I'm like, okay. And then I was like, I asked later on and it's some kind of like balances the energy from the earth to the motorcycle. It, it, I mean, I can't make this shit up, dude. It's just weird <laughs> shit that happens with Tony, but the dude, is a smart dude and he works his ass off and even we've had him on the pulp show before and he says look i am 50 percent less crazy than i used to be because mike is mellowed out he's not racing and he really is he's more down to earth you know and he he has all these girls now um they call him little cobra little cobras are everywhere and they're riding stasix and yeah, dude, that would be a great show. If you're going to have the number one show, like downloads and views, Tony Alessi would be that show, dude. Dude, yeah, I mean, stiff competition with Rhino. <laughs> I, I had no... I feel like it would be... I think it'd overtake Rhino. I think it would overtake it. It, it probably... I, I'd, I'd say you're right. And dude, even like I got guys that I do jiu-jitsu with that have asked me for six years <laughs> that I've been going into that gym when are you getting Tony Alessi on the fucking podcast? <laughs> like, dude, he yeah. is just... He's, prob he's probably one of the most, like, eccentric 
and valuable people to the industry in terms of like overall lifetime like what he has contributed to motorcycling and like not only with you know with um with mike as a racer but then i mean he was telling me crazy shit like we started talking about 350s and like the crazy shit he did with mike and and the 350 and now to be a team manager for moto concepts like that's a really legit team like if you ride for moto concepts like you've got a bike that's good enough yeah. to to win and then you know jb obviously like helped out so much with show stuff like that's a legit program and even i was talking to him in melbourne and he was like man we just i changed the parts on the fucking minute the minute that that the parts need to be changed they get changed i don't cut any corners like the passion and the attention to detail like i say he's a fucking psycho but in like in the way that you should be a psycho (laughs) when it comes to you know doing doing that job and and if you look at at mike as a athlete like that's a tiny dude that's not that you know what i mean like that's a he is not a super athletic person you look at a guy like chase sexton or jet lawrence or eli tomac you know like oh did it go out again sweet yeah you you look at like chase sexton you look at jet you look at eli they're like gnarly athletic dudes you know and like for ricky to like i mean ricky was probably a bit similar in that he wasn't like a gnarly athlete but i think that there's obviously like something there in those genes you know but you look at mike like to to look at that small guy to ride that era of 450 against you know some gnarly guys like just to to turn that kid into that kind of athlete and i mean my i was like the michael lessie era so when 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 he was when he was coming up we were like pretty much the same age you know so it was like him and Villo and those guys. Like as I was following the sport, like that was my, that was my first generation that like I felt like I went pro with those guys, you know. And uh, yeah. I remember at Steel City the second time that Alessi rolled up. Like Millville was obviously the biggest catastrophe of like a pro debut that you could have but then steel city dude that goes out and puts it on the box on that like a 450 that tony yeah. made it was just insane yep. dude like so the, the athlete yeah, that like, he created was crazy you ask uh like what you said you ask chase to throw a football and then mike alessia throw a football you can guarantee that chase will have a nice spiral and mike would be kind of ugly looking right so yeah. uh same thing like I spent a lot of time with Mike at the house and with his family and uh he's grown up a lot you know and I come to that same era like I'm Mike Alessi era you know the the Ivan Tedesco incident all these things and um I think he hasn't outgrown some of that stuff from the from the public's perception but if you're inside of it a little bit more and you see what the work has been put in with Tony like you can't say that Tony Alessi did not try everything to, to make his kids successful. You know, some of the decision-making maybe that could have been better. Maybe some of the, uh, um, off the bike brain skills could have been a little bit better in that direction. I think if that was a little bit better then I think the decision-making would have been better on the motorcycle. And I think his career goes somewhere different. Mm. Uh, but man, Tony, it just, just some of the things that you said, like he will, he'll get on a bike, he'll go down the road, uh, a quarter mile, wah, 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 come back, wah, wah. yep, it's good, don't worry about it, yep, it's fine, and gives it to Mike. You're like, uh, that's the Tony Alessi dino test, that's what we call it, that's the dino <laughs> test, so you're good. 
<laughs> so what what was it like riding that that 450 and do you know so obviously he's working with roger de costa so like he's in that i can imagine that being a fucking nightmare <laughs> tony alessi first roger yep. de costa in the direction that an yep. rmz 450 should go but like so how much input did tony have from what you understand and then what was that motorcycle like to ride and why was it so good so at the time um the bike that i rode was mostly like you said as a was a tony alessi thought it wasn't anything roger involved inside this motorcycle It was mostly just what varner you know terry varner had had put together for him um and then also uh, when he was working with Chad at XPR, Chad yep, back yep, then yep. was still doing some yep. stuff for him. Really? Even and, back uh, then, Suzuki you know, days? That, yeah. Really? So, um, yeah. So back even back, that was the time they were kind of transitioning to, you know, using some Chad stuff. And Varner was here or there, but not really around. Um, and then obviously he's been with Racetech for eons. He's still had Racetech stuff on it. Uh, but it wasn't factory stuff, wasn't factory suspension. It was a kit level things. And what the bike did was it, it was just so easy to ride. Kind of like when we talk about the 350, it felt light. It was free. Um, it didn't have a lot of engine braking. It never, if I wanted to grab a handful of throttle, it, it did that easily. It didn't squat. The bike was really level. It wasn't rigid. I was expecting it to be super rigid like a pro's bike usually is, super firm. But in the world of Mike Alessi, his stuff was fairly soft because he likes to feel, you know, the ground. And uh, the bike just cornered so good. I've never been on a motorcycle that you just thought about leaning and it just went whop right into the rut. Okay, I want to change direction. Oh, shit, the berm is blown out, cut down. It just was so easy to maneuver and felt light. And I've never felt that from from a Suzuki. So I was so gung ho on Suzukis after that. I went out and bought one. Really? I went out and got a Suzuki because I think it, I thought, oh man, I want to make it like that. And I never could make it as good as Tony Alessi's RMZ 450. No way. So yeah. was he on the factory team then? Uh, I think this was later after the factory team. Uh, this was okay. post factory team. Yeah. 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 I think yeah. 2008 nine he was on the factory team. Yeah, and this was like when he was starting to do his own thing. Still had some support here and there, but that's when he really was laying down the wood in the outdoor nationals. And that's I think, you know, when Josh Grant and him got into it at Colorado, and he hit his knee and kind of blew him out a little bit. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that's insane that that was the best bike. Because that was going to be one of my questions. Was like, what is the best bike you've ever ridden in all of your day? And I guess that nowadays it's probably the best bike and a current bike is probably going to be the best bike because technology but if you if you get i guess like adjust for inflation <laughs> like what would be the best yeah. bike i've rode a lot so we got to do when i was at dirt rider magazine we got to ride a lot of factory bike tests and uh i mean cool things like we got to spend a day at unadilla the day after the national and we had 10 10 different teams there with their bikes and we got to ride all these different kinds of bikes um so for me i still stand by that rmz 450 of mike's but if i was going into the world of like real racers and supercross guys i rode chad reed's 2004 yz 252 stroke Ooh. and that thing was so fun to ride it gave me so much confidence to just 
I remember being at the Supercross track going, dude, I don't even know if I can even hop on this bike and be able to do some of the stuff. It's a, you know, it's a new bike. Am I going to be able to do stuff? But third, fourth lap, rap, 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 just no problem. Handled bitching. It was so snappy and it sounded, I just wanted to rev it in the air just so I could hear the fucker, you know, right before that, <laughs> just that little, that, oh man, like it was so badass. And, uh, he, his mechanic was there. I only could ride, only could put 30 minutes on. They're like, hey, man, 30 minutes is all you get. So I'm like, oh, shit, I got to take photos. I got to do this. And so I made sure I did every photo, like, on the first or second try so I could put the most time on the track. And, dude, that thing was unbelievable. That thing would go through whoops so freaking good. It's unbelievable. Chad, and he, I'll say this about Chad. Chad is a really, really good test guy. Like, he know one he knows what he wants in his own bike but i think that rolls over into i think he knows what a bike should do in certain areas of the track and if you can dissect that mm. and help a rider i think chad is very valuable in that instance you know yeah 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 because i think that he, he kind of got a bit of a bad rap because he would always like people would say throughout his career oh, he just blames the bike he blames the bike he blames the bike but in reality he probably just really really knew what he was chasing and it's i guess that's where like the disconnect is is that and i think that you know you can see this in all kind of sports like this is one of the things where with like ricardo and mclaren it's like you've got a driver that can yep. is telling you like this car does not do this. This is what it needs to do. But he's not an engineer. That's not what he's paid to do. He can't tell you how to get that result. But he can say, like, this is unequivocally what this car is doing, and it needs to be doing this. And then it's like, that's where the magic is in teams and in, you know, in and in... Uh, like that's what wins championships that's what wins championships consistently is when you can have a guy that knows exactly what a bike needs or what he wants out of a, a car or whatever it is and then you've actually got a guy on the back end that can take that feedback and then deliver that back and then you fine tune and it's just this process back and forward between two people and i think that chad kind of got a bad rap in saying that he always blamed the bike but i guess when you're that sensitive and when you understand exactly what the motorcycle is doing or not doing again i guess maybe it comes down to what i said about predictions at the at the highest level you know exactly what you need to do a but with the bike that you've got it's only capable of doing b so you just can't pull the trigger. And I guess there's some guys that don't give a fuck and pull the trigger anyway. Well, it's like you saying you're a deep thinker, right? So like being a test rider, you got to be like a, a more of a, of a deep thought process kind of guy. Um, oh, we froze again. Oh, my froze for you. Oh, there you, well, you're back. Oh, sweet. Here we go. You there? Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. Okay. So being what you were saying, like being a deep thinker, you got to be like that as a test rider. And I'm more on the side of the riders when it depends on the rider. I shouldn't say that. I'm more on the side of the rider that says, okay, I know exactly where I, what I want. Can you give me this? It's up to the, the team to be able to do that. And when you have a guy like Chad says, Hey, I need X, Y, Z. It's not doing this. Like they need to have the type of, of, employee and manpower within that manufacturer to be able to help that along. So 
Chad was always, like you said, the guy like, hey, this this is no good. The shock's no good. I need to change my forks. He, uh, The guys knew when Chad was around, we're going to change a pair of forks for sure before yeah. practice too. We already knew it. Yeah. But when you're when you're a test guy and I'm and I'm similar, like you you know the feeling. You have that feeling wired inside of you and you don't find that and you're so in tune with the dirt, you know what, what this kind of dirt does to this fork, and you don't have that, it's hard to explain that to another engineer when they're so engineering thought process, not yeah. a rider. So yeah. I've dealt with some engineers that live by the dyno that live by their engineering degree, but they're not writers. So it's really tough to bridge those two together. And then for me, like what you said about having that mesh in that team, you look at a guy like Eli and Gilly. Yeah. Ricky Gilmore from KYB. Yep. Like Ricky is part of that whole (laughs) Aussie. Yeah. And (laughs) that, but that championship is as championships is as much Gilly's as it is Eli's. Like he needs Gilly because not only does Gilly have an engineering mind, but he rides, he gets it. He, he can help yeah, that yeah, along. Yeah, it's yeah, tough yeah. to find. Yeah, nah, definitely. So what then makes a, a good test rider or how should the average guy, because it's something that like I'm, I love doing it. I love messing with my bike and I probably do it too much. But I just enjoy the process of like figuring things out and going in different directions. And but so like, what should what should the average rider do? Like, what should you do to your bike first? What's the if you want to test? Like, how should you go about it? Do you have like a I guess a little bit of a Kiefer road book that you kind of think people should follow to to sort of like get to know their motorcycle better? I don't really have like a like a cheat sheet so to speak but for me it like basically starts out with what we were saying earlier in the show just try different things on your motorcycle and see if you can feel those and then for me what's really helped and a lot of people don't do this and to be a good test rider is you got to have notes Mm. I write a lot of stuff down in my phone I have papers in my office like I keep notes of feeling right so when you and that's what dirt bikes is if you really think about it when you ride a dirt bike, it's a feeling that you get. That's what, if you have the feeling that makes you go fast. If you don't have that feeling, you roll the throttle off. So mm. when you do get that feeling of like, okay, this day was good. The dirt was good. The track was good. My bike felt good. Somehow write that down. So you know what that feels like. My bike was planted here in this corner. Uh, I had good rear wheel traction here. No deflection. Um, it hooked up things like that that is a great way to start by writing things down and know what that feeling feels like and then you're going to have more days that feel like shit right so then you can always reference back to those good days that you have written down and then you can compare notes why is it that my bike is kicking out on me in this corner okay well there is a new hole here this that hole wasn't there before okay how do i go about fixing that well, let me just try going compression in. Does that get worse? Yes, it does. Write it down. Yeah. Like you're only as good as what you try. That's an old testing saying. Like if you only tried so much, you're only you're only going to be as good as that. Yeah. So, for me, experiment, write stuff down and then you will get to know the feeling more and then that will guide you in the right direction. Because there's no really like roadmap like, "Hey man, 
if you do this to your shock and you and you go that direction, you should know how to test. Like, oh, hey, Jace, I'm going to do something to your shock. Tell me what it did. You're going to be like, fuck, uh, uh, maybe yeah. it felt like this. But you don't, you don't have any past record to know what that feeling feels like. Yeah. So you need some of that. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about uh, the way you break down corners as well. So you've got like A, B, and C. So you've got, I'm guess, is that right? A, you call it A, B, and C, or like uh, area one, two, and yeah. three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what's your like thinking, but in that, and like what are you looking for in like? So let's say it's just like a left hand, n- nice rut, some bumps coming in and some acceleration bumps coming out, but it's like a smooth, nice rut. Like what are you trying to feel, or what are you like wanting from your bike in those different areas? So if we want to break it down, uh, you know, between, I always try to break it down, chassis, engine, suspension. Um, and that, that testing term that I use, area one, two, and three, comes from trying to um, talk to the Japanese riders, or Japanese engineers. Yeah. So I had to come up with certain ways to explain to them, like, hey, this is what I'm feeling here. So I kind of rolled that into my, my lingo, so to speak, when I was talking to some of these guys. So. Um, what you should break down as far as engine wise is if you're coming into a corner and you're rolling your throttle off is how the ride attitude of your bike is is it flat mm. and in if you want to if you want to perform a rut berm whatever it is you got to have the right ride attitude of the motorcycle if you're front end too low you might have oversteer so you're gonna knife, right? Yeah, yeah. So you wanna think about your bike being as flat as possible, going over the bump, so that way you can start your lean early into the corner. That's what you're really looking for. Now, that could be a lot of different things. It could be technique too, maybe because you're hauling ass and you just jam on the brakes and you're diving down. But yeah, yeah. there's a lot of different variables with dirt bikes, right? So. For me, it's ride attitude. That's the number one thing. How flat is your motorcycle coming into the corner and then how your bike reacts engine-wise from the throttle. We always talk about throttle connectivity. So when you touch your throttle, does your bike react You know, too much? Is it nice and smooth? And that's one thing good about KTMs. It's always pretty smooth, so there's not a lot of reaction into those, those types of engines. So. You always want a controllable engine and a flat feeling chassis ride attitude when you come into the corner. That's what you're looking for. And then, so as you go into like area two, then what are you kind of looking for in mm-hmm. that in that section of the of the corner? Basically, you're a front end steering guy. You want front wheel feel because that's really when you start putting pressure on that front wheel, right? So you want a fork that feels somewhat plush in that area that gives yep, you a yep. lot a lot of tire contact feel. Um, because I don't know if you know, and if you had this experience, so if your fork is too stiff, you will feel like your tire width is really narrow. Like you're mm. like, oh man, I'm skating out a lot, I'm getting a lot of push. And that's most of the reasons is A, too much pressure in your tire, or that your fork is just too stiff. Yep. And you're not getting a lot of tire contact patch, right? So area two is important where you put all that pressure on your rubber and then you want that fork to kind of move a little bit in that mid stroke yeah. because that's basically where you're riding into that area two of the corner. So you want some supple feel in there and that's what you're looking for is like tire contact patch and bite 
And then that last part of area three, you're going to roll that throttle on harder. So you want that fork to kind of stay down a little. You don't want that fork coming up yeah, and pushing yeah. outward. Yeah. So you want your rebound somewhat slower in that area. So that way you, your bike, again, the ride attitude of your bike is somewhat flat. You're not trying to like push your front end away from the rut. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, what you were just talking about in area two. That was actually the thing that I felt the most because I've just got the the new MX Tech forks and I haven't been able to put that much time on them. And because they're like literally brand new, there's just like that general bed in time, you know. So they were like fairly stiff. And I was just like, right, I'm not really going to bother too much with doing any clicks here because it's a brand new fork. So I was just trying to put some time and get them to where they felt like they started softening up on their own. And then once they started softening up on their own, I had a couple of people ride it and they're like, yeah, it's just, they're just too stiff. So like, let's back it out. And then we ended up just backing it out like two clicks at a time until what you said Mm -hmm. about that tire contact point and, and getting into area two, like I actually, I think one thing that's like a telltale sign for me of a fork being too stiff is that it feels like you're actually getting rebound in the middle of the turn in that area too. You want to rebound upward, yeah. Yeah, so it feels like you're actually, it because it's just not going like down enough. Um, so yeah, that's where mm-hmm. that I, I basically the other day riding would set my fork to like have it to where it felt like it kept going down into area two the way that you're explaining and not getting like that, that like rebounding uh, feeling coming out of it. So it's funny too, because I, I wrote an article actually still write articles. I don't know if you read anymore, but like a lot of people (laughs) don't read, they want it on video. But for me, like, again, I write everything down. So uh, I wrote an article called action and reaction for every action we take on suspension or engine, there's a reaction somewhere else, right? So again, you want to soften that area up and you might get that portion of the track better. But you know, now that you softened it up, your rebound is now quicker. So now your rebound is is going faster because your your fork is moving more, right? So your your rebound's coming up quicker. So I have a theory that I've put in place a long time in testing is that every two clicks that I go in on compression, um, if I'm going stiffer two, I back out my rebound one. Mm. Or if you go out two on compression, I stiffen my rebound one. So mm-hmm. that way it balances it out, right? Because if you go too soft, um, you could be riding too low on the entrance of your corner, but yet it could be okay in area two. So you can stiffen that rebound and that acts like a form of compression as well. Yeah, yeah. and I Dude, think, I'm uh, telling you right now, motorcycles is tough. It's tough. It's a tough <laughs> deal, dude. It's a, such a hard deal. <laughs> well, that, that's one thing that I... Um, I can't remember who was actually telling me this, um, but I remember one day wanting to change my compression on my shock and then uh i had someone just say like just go out to on your rebound and then that you'll probably mm-hmm. free up like it'll feel like you're um softening your shock but you'll actually just be like freeing it up a little bit so that that was like the yep. first time i started thinking about like the relationship between compression and rebound yeah and too like it goes off of dirt too like i don't know if you talking about your shit days at your track and those shit days are probably hard pack and square edgy yeah, and just yeah. poor track prep. I speed up my rebound on those type of days to get my wheel back onto the ground quicker. So I have more 
more tire contact feel, right? And then if you have really good days at the track where it's disc deep and you have soft bumps, I try to slow my bike down a little bit in, in the compression area things because I have a, enough traction, but yet yeah. I don't want my wheels get kicking me into a corner when I have, you know, tall, soft bumps. Yeah, yeah. So uh, how much should the average guy be thinking about this stuff? Like, or do you think that it's pretty much... <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, we could talk, like you said, that's complicated. You could go all oh, yeah. in on this, but then it's like for the average guy, like what's the advice there? Is it just do as much as you want to do, but maybe always have like a base setting to kind of go back to or like how do you feel about that because it's one thing to be like a test rider that's given that information but it's like it's just like these days everyone wants a podcast so it's like should everyone have a podcast yeah. <laughs> right should like everyone for me, be it a depends test if you're a tech <laughs> if you're a techie guy i would say screw with your bike because that's obviously what you like to do but if you're just an average guy that wants to go ride enjoy himself with your buddies you don't need to get and I tell people this all the time in my shows. I go, look, if you don't feel what I feel, tell me to fuck off. Like, it's fine. Like, I don't care. I'm just giving you the maximum information that you may need. If you do not feel what I feel, no problem. That doesn't make it right or wrong. You just, hey, I don't feel what you feel, Kiefer. Cool. No problem. So for me, at least set your sag because that's what the bike is designed for to work yeah, with. Yeah. Right. Uh, Set your sag to the, go in your owner, owner's manual, see what it is, um, recommended sag, and then make sure maintenance things like tire pressures are correct, fork height is correct, and then past that, if you do feel like it's soft, oh, Kiefer, I'm bottoming out, that's okay. Like, people freak out when they bottom out. I'm like, you're supposed to use all of your suspension. Mm -hmm. But if you're bottoming out four or five times a lap, that's soft then just go in on the compression a little bit. You might find it works for you. That's how basic it can be. Mm. Like, and I feel like most of the people are that basic. Like set your sag, check your tire pressure, check your fork height. Hey, it's a little bit soft. Turn the compressor in, um, compression in two clicks. And if you feel a difference, cool. That's, that's what I feel like most people at least should do. If you want to go in more depth, that's why I'm here. Yeah. And then we can geek out all we want about how to create a better motorcycle for you. But there's no right or wrong way. People are like, oh, so if I don't, so if I don't feel that, Kiefer, am I doing something wrong? I'm like, no, man, you're just not as sensitive. And I don't expect you to be as sensitive as me because I'm freaking psycho when it comes to <laughs> yeah. feeling shit. Like, I, I feel stupid stuff. People are like, how do you feel a millimeter, Kiefer? I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, I feel it when I ride. Like, We've done these things so many times, like two millimeters, one millimeter here, chain length a little bit different, and it completely changes the, the, the action of the motorcycle. But I also know I am not the normal consumer. Like, yeah, I understand yeah. that. I'm not oblivious to that. Yeah. So. Have you noticed since you've been gaining traction with, with Kiefer Inc. and the, your own project that you've got going on have you noticed that over time people have gotten more into what you're doing or do you think that people have like kind of always been this into it but they've never really had like the guy that's kind of out there giving them the information in the same way that you are because i feel like you've got a 
you got to, there's a lot of guys that can test. There's a lot of guys in media that can test, but you've like really gone super all in on like your own platforms of, you know, giving this information to people. Has it really like built over time and people have, you think, I guess, have you like created an interest in a sense that wasn't there before maybe? I feel like I have. I feel like since I've started this back in 2017, 18-ish, after I left the magazine, that I can be myself. And then people know my personality. And what that rolls into is, hey, you know, I want to learn how to make my motorcycle better. Mm. And I feel like I've, I've gave people the tools the knowledge to try to do that. And there was a market out there for that. I felt that when I was at the magazine because I couldn't do that type of thing being in the position I was as an editor at a magazine. So Mm. I get emails all the time, man. I get people, hey man, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the effort you put into this. I have never enjoyed my motorcycle as much as I do now. And it's entertaining to listen to. It's not just like, one clicker here, two clickers here. Like there's some personality behind it. You seem like mm. a normal dude. Um, so I feel like I've kind of created and maybe hopefully changed some other media outlets to try to force them to be like, let's help the consumer more, man. Mm. Uh, I've opened my doors, so to speak, to other people, letting them in like, hey, if you have a question, I'm not going to ignore you or cool guy you like. I ride dirt bikes just like you. You need something answered. You don't know if that $1,000 is going to be the right $1,000 to spend for you. Let me help you. Mm. Um, That's where I've kind of like, I felt like I've created a niche for myself where there was a line, a lot of blurred lines with advertisements and Mm. then doing, you know, media testing, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was one of the things that really pissed me off about being at the magazine because I would have to write things about stuff that wasn't so good, but we had to write the shiny side of it because they're paying the magazine. Right. Yeah. So when I, when I wanted to leave, I really thought about like, how am I going to be able to make money and do what I want to do? Right. Because if I'm going to make money, I got to have advertisers. So what I've done, I've created my advertisers are people that I would spend my own money on. I get guys hitting me up or companies hit me up all the time and say, Hey, Kiefer, we'd love to advertise with you. Um, Can we, you know, pay you X amount to advertise? Uh, First, I tell them, look, I don't take banner ads on my site. I refuse that because that's annoying as fuck. (laughs) Um, Number two is I would love to try your product. And if I think it's decent, and I like it and I would use it, then let's let's talk afterwards. And then if that part or product doesn't work, I, I'll call them. I'm not gonna blow them out on my website. Say, yo, this shit sucks, don't buy it. I yeah. go, Here, here's the problem with your part. Here's what I feel. If you wanna improve it, here's what I think you should do. It's up to you guys to do that, but I don't want your money at this time. So shit, man, I could be a lot richer than I am right now, but I just feel like for the times we're living in, and how much um, lack of communication there is in our motorcycle world, in our media side, I want it to be different. So I'd rather be here for the long burn than the short burn and make a lot of money and then just bounce out. Like I love dirt bikes, just like what we're talking about. So I'll give you my opinion. Is it the right one? That's for you guys to decide, but I just wanna make sure that the guys that are hitting me up know that I'm not here 
just to say something's good because I get paid. Sure, do I get paid by some people? Absolutely, but it's the shit that I would buy myself. Yeah. I like it that much. Yeah, That's kind of how I worked it, and I think people appreciate that side of things because I'm open about it. I'm not hiding. I'm not hiding behind my computer and saying, yeah, you know, the 2023 YZ450 is the best bike ever made. You know, this is where it's at, you know, and I'm sponsored by Yamaha. I just can't do it. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I won't do it that way. Um, so I think it's helped for the better. And I think those people are actually seeing it now. And yeah, for me, it's rewarding. It's rewarding work, Jace. Like if I wasn't in this type of work, I feel like I would be some kind of caretaker or something like I did for my mom. But this is kind of like my caretaker side of things yeah. for the dirt bike world. Yeah. You know, like I'm helping people. That's that's what I get off on. Like I like helping people. And do I fuck up sometimes? Dude, absolutely. I, I, I do dumb shit just like everyone else. But I'm not scared to say, hey, I was wrong. And in our world, our motorcycle world, there's just it's not a very transparent world. So I try to be as transparent as possible with my life, my business and everything. So. I don't know, man. I have a great time doing it, and uh, I I I hope it's worked. Yeah. No, well, I think it, it it comes across, but I think you just can't avoid the people talking shit. And I think that it's like I mean, even I'm I'm like just getting into the I feel like the era of people that are just like shitting on stuff that I say now. I guess like it's probably because I've taken some like fairly strong stances on things, and I guess that that's like part and parcel of like actually having uh an opinion uh these days but yeah i feel like um you're probably always going to get those like people that shit on you but i think in the end authenticity does win um and you know like i don't think you could have made it to the position that you've made it without like that level of authenticity even though i'm sure you still get a shitload of comments of people (laughs) that carry on and here's the thing like not everyone uh you know loves gypsy tales like you're not for everyone right but the people that respect it are, that's their source. That's what they're going to, right? I want to learn more about this guy and I'm going to listen to Jace talk to him because I know what I like. And that's what I tell people, man. I go, sure, man, I'm not for everybody. If you believe in some other person, no problem. Like, I'm not going to hate on it. Like, yeah. it's not a right or wrong thing. And in our world, I feel like that's what everything's about. Yeah. Like, either I'm on this side and fuck everyone else. Like, I'm not like that. Like, do I disagree on certain things? Sure. But I'm like, not like, fuck that guy mm. or fuck this magazine. Like, but if you trust those people more, by all means, do that. That yeah. is great. Just stay on a motorcycle. If I'm here and if I can help, I'm here. If not, no big deal. Yeah. Nah, I feel you. So, so talking about uh, 23 motorcycles then, uh, so far, have you ridden everything yet from the 23 offerings? And then I guess what, are you, uh, what excites you for 2023? Well, what excites me is, uh, honestly, <laughs> just doing some more new stuff with the, the 23 motorcycles. KTM is, is new, so I like when changes happen for the good or bad. I just like to tinker with stuff. So um, I'm excited for the 23 uh, 450 KTM platform. It's It needs a little bit of work. It's a little bit stiffer than what you're riding, your 20, the frame is. Um, the 23 YZ450 is a lot of hype. And it is a better motorcycle. We went to the goat farm on yeah. two weeks ago or whatever and had a, had a great experience, you know, and it was fun to ride, but the bike is different and it needs to be, you know, 
known that, hey, it's not going to feel just like your 22YZ450. There's going to do, uh, the bike's going to do some things better. It's going to corner a little bit better. It's going to feel lighter, but it may not be as stable as your old bike. Um, so that's where I come in. I'm going to try to get some of that stability up and then keep that lightweight, good cornering character. So I haven't done shootouts in about, I don't know, two, three years. Um, so I think I'm going to do shootouts again because I'm kind of hyped up on some of these new ideas I have about doing shootouts and I like to do different things. So maybe we spend some more money on a certain bike to raise its level up and then compete it with other bikes. Oh uh, yeah, um, yeah. So not, er so maybe not everything's just, you know, here it comes out of the dealership floor. Let's test them. You know, let's, let's do certain things to different bikes to make them as best as we can. And then let's all rank them, you know? Yeah. So, I might, I'm excited about doing some new stuff like that. In the position that I'm in, I'm able to do that, which is nice. And uh, RacerX allows me to, to kind of create my own ideas and then do the video side with RacerX. And then I'll do the podcast article side over here on Kiefer Inc. So it kind of hits a lot of different demographics. Yeah, yeah, that, that's super cool. I think that's probably a good idea, really, because it's, it's like, so what's the retail of the KTM 450 over there? So we're getting a KTM 450 about $11,000. And then, so what would that be to a Yamaha? Um, we're about, it's about, it's a probably a grand less than a, than a YZ450 you can get. And then of course, then you got other bikes that are in that same Yamaha vicinity. Yeah. A couple hundred bucks here and there, but KTM is the most expensive if you're just buying the standard editions. You know, because then you got all the different factory editions. What, does does well. the Husky work out more expensive than the KTM? So yeah, so the Husky brand itself, how the how that group wants to brand each bike. The Gas Gas is the fun motorcycle brand. Yeah, yeah. The Husqvarna is the is the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Is the premium um, boutique brand? Yeah, yeah. yeah, boutique brand. And then KTM's were the race brand. So um, Husqvarna and KTM are similar in pricing and within a couple hundred bucks. Uh, okay. But the husk of the husk of Arna is a little bit different because they lower their suspension ten mil. Yeah. So there are some differences between the KTM and the Husqvarna and the Gas Gas, where the Gas Gas uses a blend of KTM and Husqvarna pieces. Yeah. And then the Husqvarna in twenty three is the most similar to the KTM now that it ever has been, um, but it just has a ten millimeter lower fork and shock. So essentially, you do like a. $11,000 uh, shootout. So it's like you get all the 450s together and then they all end up costing $11,000. And it's essentially like this is the best motorcycle you can get for $11,000, not the this is the best of the stock motorcycles. That kind of would be like the idea of that shootout. Yeah, and like maybe I raise the price even more. Let's say you know yeah, yeah i raise it up a thousand or two thousand dollars more so if you can do something to those expensive bikes you can yeah. but yet if you really want to do a shit ton to that suzuki you got all of this that you can create right and let's see how they really rank up does a well-built suzuki with some engine work some suspension work is it as good as a as a new bike on all different kinds of levels not just for me but is 220 pound guy going to be enjoying it as much as i am so that's what I like to use as a wide range of guys because I'm all dick and ribs compared to most people that buy bikes yeah, for 450s, yeah. right? These yeah. guys are 200 pounds, you know? So, um, especially here in America, Jace, we, uh, we're big boys over here. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I like I like that uh, I like that idea, and I also think as much as um, uh, as much as I was saying that we need like that entry level Suzuki budget bike to get people into it, I'm also not mad at a, a manufacturer coming out with like a twenty seven thousand dollar motorcycle. Like people would buy that motorcycle. I mean, do you look at an S Works? uh specialized e-bike like a levo bro you're fucking spending like 25 grand on that son of a bitch so it's like dude i ain't mad at at honda or kawasaki coming out with something that is just blinged off its tits and it's like good it's got like a real (laughs) motor you know what i mean it's got like some fucking good shit in it comes with a kit forks comes with a good shock like just comes with the recluse clutch just literally build this bitch out to be fucking bad build me a baddie and then you know you could if you made 500 or 600 of those bikes per year you know then you can kind of like justify the a kit and you can you know bring that cost down but give me a s works honda bro like give me that i want to know like give me <laughs> yeah. the shit that's just got like everything done to it it's got some of the parts from the factory team like make there be a point to even have a factory motorcycle you know like you know pass it yeah. on boys yeah dude that's absolutely i'm the same way like i'm the guy that bitches about like your $25,000 S works. I'm like, I ain't ever getting that. That's insane. So I understand the guys going, I can't afford a $15,000 works edition. So I understand both sides, but it's, it's getting sold. There's yeah. people out there that Dude, spend sure. 25 K on a, on a S work. So why not build it? And, and the factory edition, like the whole marketing scheme, it's proven correct how many other brands have hopped on that bandwagon you know yeah we've got a, a special racer we got a works edition we got all these different special motorcycles now that they're my buddy fifteen thousand dollars i'm like you're insane for fifteen thousand dollars. i would roach that thing in two months it would be roached yeah but he does it like he did it because he loves it like they love it so dude i'm all for it just like you yeah what would you do what would you do if you were the, if you said all right, we got 25 grand. This is going to be our retail. Like, obviously, they need to make a bit of cash on it. What do you think can go on a motorcycle that actually is good to hit that 25 or $27,000 price tag? First, the suspension. Like, you can, people freak out on a kit, and I understand because it looks like, uh, oh, you for can example, jerk off I walk it. out into my shop. Oh, right. Like, I walk out into my shop and I see the Works Edition Honda, and I'm like, Mm-mm-mm. I want to yeah. take you somewhere and I just want to treat you like shit, right? Like, I like <laughs> that look. Yeah. But then you ride it and you're like, eh, it's not as good as it looks. She wasn't as fun as I thought she was going to be, right? So for me, I would start with a good setting with suspension. And if it's a kit, awesome. Let's put the all the nooks and crannies on it. Let's gold it up. Let's But let's make it work really well. So you have that. And then for me, I remember a long time ago, I don't know if you remember this, uh, James Stewart and his dad got a lot of heat for James ain't racing unless he has his ECU with him. And people are like, it's a fucking ECU. What's the big deal? Like it's yeah. an ECU. But I'm telling you right now with modern day four strokes, if you have a finely tuned ECU and you know this, you have one on your yeah. bike, it changes the whole character of your motorcycle, not just the engine, but the chassis. Oh, like for sure. I have a vor- Yes, like I have a Vortex in my Yamaha YZ450, my race bike, 
not because I want more power. I don't need more power. I need the power spread out in a certain way, right? Yeah. So an aftermarket ECU would be on that and the parameters would be big. And then I would start trinkling in like seat covers, different handlebars, uh, clamps and things like that. And then I would go to the engine. A lot of these factory edition or works editions, I shouldn't say factory edition because they don't do anything to their engines, but like the Honda engine is just cleaned up. Like I would take it up a step further and get that ECU that we're putting in. Let's do some work to the head. Let's put a piston in there um, and let's tune that ECU around this engine to where you're just like, dude, this is like melted butter on French toast. Like it's yeah, so yeah. smooth. Like yeah. it's insane, right? Like, and that's what these factory engines are like. When I ride these guys' engines, you think this thing's gonna be so much power, but it's not. They're so smooth and long. Yeah. And all of that tech is in, most of it is in that suspension and chassis. Like that's where all that tech is. So that's what I would do for a factory edition if I was gonna build one. I would really fine tune the engine around an ECU get that suspension to where it's comfortable, but you have hold up because that's the beauty about factory suspension. So when I ride factory suspension, or in your case, you have the blackjack stuff, right? So your performance goes up, but then when sometimes when you get performance that goes upward, the comfort never really matches that performance. So yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. my performance is better, so I can slam into shit harder, but maybe my light bump is not as good. Well, when you ride factory stuff, because I've had the pleasure to doing that, both of those rise up together. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. So not only are you getting that performance gain, your comfort level is as equal. Um, so that thing that you said, like, hey, I didn't even know I could hit that that corner or that chug that hard. That's what great suspension or factory level stuff can really do and change a rider's life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, even so my brother, the first time I rode a really good ignition, my brother has a 2018 350 EXC that's got like uh, the stock ECU mapped. And dude, I rode this thing. We do like this six hour endurance race at like this. Um, it's a super cool event. It's uh, Transmoto six hour. And uh, it felt like my hand was connected to the rear wheel. Like that's how good the the ecu was yep. on this thing and my bike and this was like a few years ago it was like brand new 2020 like 350 and it was fluttery and a little bit like there's a disconnect between what you do on the throttle and what happens at the rear wheel and i just couldn't believe how much easier it was to ride this bike and that was just a stock ecu that wasn't even a like a you know the vortex which has a bunch of different things that you can do in there right but yeah i mean that that's like one of the most i guess underrated things that you can do and not just get it and put it in your bike like go and put the bike on a dyno and get them to tune it for exactly what you've done and i think that's probably what you could do with like that twenty seven thousand dollar price tag is you could have yep. the bikes come they do the motor work then they put the ignition on and every bike gets run on the dyno and then mapped correctly to that bike because that's not happening on like your every like that's not happening on a stock bike that you'll get at a right at a dealership you know what i mean so and then yeah obviously the the suspension sort of because i don't think that a lot of the other stuff it's sort of just inconsequential unless you've got those two things dialed absolutely like 
you you sound like a test guy. Like for me, when you have an ECU that's set up and mapped, that's the thing. Because I get a lot of emails saying, "Hey man, I'm buying a Vortex ECU. I'm going to put it on." It, sure, it's going to help a little bit, but you have to have it mapped for what fuel you're running. Yeah. If you have anything done to your engine, like that's what these good um, aftermarket engine guys do really well is they map these vortexes like Jamie at Twisted, Chad at XPR. These dudes are really good about fine-tuning these ECUs for these bikes. And that's where all the gains are. That's where your connectivity is. Yeah. That's where how how you know, you're adding 500 RPM to your over-rev. Like, it changes the way your bike works. And for me, that is an just underrated thing and we laughed about that and I did too back in the day because there wasn't that much going on with ECU tuning like 10 years ago yeah and this was like I'm not going to to Bercy without my ECU and people are like why is James such a such a bitch like why yeah he, yeah yeah you know I thought it was just suspension why does he need an ECU and people don't understand like it's a whole different world yeah so now Vortex or these get systems are out there and they're available for the average dude and then you got these tuners that can tune them and there's so there's such wide parameters within these boxes that it's yeah it makes a whole different machine. Yeah, yeah. And then I was had uh, filthy Phil um, on here last week, and he was talking even like if so Roxon's Honda race bike would not be all of the power that a Honda 450 has even stock for for Supercross. Outdoors, different story. But he's like, Supercross, the thing sounds like a vacuum cleaner. And there would be so many different, like, retardations of the of the ECU at certain RPMs. And, like, so they're able to even, like, slow these things down, which I'm actually kind of interested. I'm lucky enough. I, I, I work with this guy, Jed Parsons, here in Australia. And he's just up the road and he's got his own dyno. And he's actually the Vortex uh, importer into Australia and he's so rad mm-hmm. but i'm actually even thinking of going back up there and saying hey can you make me another map where this bike's like slow like i, w- I want to actually take right. take a bunch out of this thing and then see if it's like a rental cart <laughs> where i can pretty much just hold the thing <laughs> hold the thing pinned everywhere but like there's so right. much that that guys can do now with with this so to hear that james wouldn't go race with a stock ignition that makes total sense that's just like a crap shooter so like how clean does this thing even run yeah yeah like i did some mapping for the twisted i'm sorry for the club mx guys before outdoor season this year because amart and these guys are like dude spikes too fast like i can't ride this thing and i'm like all right so jamie built the engine and jamie builds these engines that are just gnarly freaking engines right and yeah. then you got a little troll trying to hang on this some bitch and you can't so i worked a lot on the mapping with jamie so then they sent it over to alex and he's like, dude, it's unbelievable. Like, it's so much better. Like, I can actually ride it. It's not wheeling out of corners. It's not getting away from me. It's planted to the ground. Like, and you were able to do that with that kind of shit. Yeah, it's amazing. So what did you do then to, to like, are you uh, taking RPMs away from it? Or are you, like, where in the, in the throttle position are you actually taking power away? Like, what's the direction that you go um, when you're trying to make a bike like that more controllable? Well, that's up to Jamie most of the time. I'm more of a of a guy like, okay, hey, Jamie, we have too much um, coming out of a corner. I'm wheeling a lot. I'm getting a lot of wheel spin going up a hill. Like it's just lighting up. So he'll work with the ignition timing and then the fuel timing. 
yeah. on the, and so they'll richen it up a little bit here. He'll, he'll take away something here and then I'll go back out. And those are some of the most tedious days that I have as far as a tester. Like when I was testing for Honda production stuff, we would be doing just ECU testing for three straight days. So I'd come in a 15 minute break, go back out and it, it could be such small changes, right? So yeah. this is the part of like being in tune with the motorcycle, like, and it's just all day long. You got to get it certain here. You got to get it here. And then they got to get the board out and look at the board and where the numbers are. And so it's just a tedious job on both sides. And so that's kind of my relay to, to when I do these ECU tests is like, all right, we need less here or I can, I feel like I'm running out in third gear or second gear up on the straightaway. I would like a little bit more here. And that's what they're able to do. The good tuners can get you more on top, but yet build it slower down low. So it's a gradual, you know, RPM gain versus just wah, wah. Because yeah. when you get these 250Fs and I've ridden like a Club MX 250, dude, it is so quick. Yeah, and just yeah, wah, yeah. Wah, wah, so it just free, builds right? the R like, RPM so quickly. So then you got to shift early because it just goes through the power so fast, right? So then you got to map that to kind of calm that down, which is great in Supercross, which you need that instant hit to get you out of that corner and three in, right? But in outdoors, you don't want that because you got to roll your corner a different way. You're not just coming out of a bowl and, and jumping three in. And then what happens is, I walked New Jersey Supercross track after the 450 main event this year, and it was like a fucking bomb went off in Baghdad. Yeah, dude. It was so gnarly. Like, it was, I'm like, there is no way in hell I would want a really fast bike in this condition because it just would not handle for one, and it would wear you out so quick. I'm like, holy crap, man. It, it, if, if you could ever get on a supercross track after the 450 main event and walk it, it would bring a whole new light to how gnarly these dudes are and how good these bikes are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, it, it was, it's a, a Casey Stoner thing. I, we put up a clip that actually did real well on Instagram, but people were just like fully against it where I kind of suggested, and this was a suggestion from Casey is that you go to like, we need, we almost need like a supercross tire where it's more like a flat track tire, but it's it's not a flat track tire, so it's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying like, well, we got these tires, just go put that on. It's not what it is. I think that there's probably <laughs> room to where like we almost need to make a really specific rear tire because the way that these tracks are getting chewed out now with 450s is just on a level. Like I have walked Supercross tracks after the races, like and in the years that I was there, like you could just see them get worse and worse and even visibly like dude Anaheim 3 this year is one that really sticks in my mind of like that one whoop sec literally one whoop section decided who won the race like Ando basically was like fuck yep. it I'm doing it and then Eli was like fuck it I'm doing it too and then there was like six laps went by and Eli's like mm, nah I'm not doing it I'm over it and then Ando wins the race like literally one section of track decided the entire outcome of a 450 main event because one dude was down to grab his dick and just fucking go through a set of whoops you know yep so it's like to me i'm like man i don't know if that's the safest thing that we should be doing and then there's 
you start to go through the season and you just see it just wear on these guys. Guys are going out left, right, and center. And then by round 10 of 17, there's two. it's a two-horse race. So then the rest of the guys are like, man, I, just, I ain't risking it. Like, it's too fucking gnarly. So it's like, do, is there even room where we develop a specific tire? Because you can still get good traction out of those, you know, like a, say, a, um, like a trials tire or a dirt bike tire. But it's like, do we, do we try and go to something that is like, and maybe you don't say like, it has to be Dunlop or it has to be uh, Pirelli. It's not like a control tire in that sense, but there's like parameters that you have to stick in. You've got knobs can be this high. They can be this far apart. You can have, you know what I mean? Like figure out what a good right, tire right. is that doesn't completely destroy the track, but is safe. Cause I mean, me and Hill actually spoke about it the other day where he's like, man, I've been on, I've tested some tires in Supercross that are just dog shit. And he said, it's the scariest thing you'll ever do. So he's like, give me the ruts and the fucking bumps <laughs> over a lack of traction. But in my head, I'm like, man, maybe there's a world where we can have both, where you can have all the traction you need to do all the things that you need to do, but you're also not going to completely destroy the track to where, like you said, it looks like a fucking bomb went off in Baghdad. And then there's two dudes that are willing to do it because they're the ones that are in the championship. Yep. And literally, like, that's not a bad idea, for one. Like, if they had a, a spec, right? Not a spec tire, but like a spec where everyone had to remain inside, that could still work. And if you have some of these tire manufacturers that are really good, you know, if Bridgestone came back, uh, Dunlop and Pirelli did these things, um, I still feel like uh, it'd be it'd be tough. I don't know if it would be as jacked up, but I still feel like it'd be pretty screwed up. Mm. One is because we're talking 450s, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. if we were going back down sizes, right, then it'd be like maybe it's a little bit more presentable, like we could actually do it. But, man, the 450s are putting out so much torque, and they're just burning up the, that dirt. That And we all want good, soft dirt, right, because that's yeah, the traction, you want traction. that yeah. everyone wants. And then we get hard pack and everyone bitches about it, right? So like, what do you do? And I just think, you know what? It's about being create, be creative. So when I walked this track, I saw certain lines that, and, I, and I don't know who was taking them because I wasn't on the track, but you could see some of these lines that are literally mm. inches from the main line. Like I'm talking, maybe, maybe not even inches, like just off of the main line that I was like, dude, that's the smooth line. That's where to go. But you're right next to the tough block. And you're like, oh, that is sketchy as shit. Mm. But open in your mind, being creative. And then, like you said, dropping your nutsack and saying, well, this is the line I have to do to win, right? So I don't know, man. There's just a lot of variables within riding period. We talked about that with testing. There's just so much to, uh, to think about. And we could change. But are we that open-minded? No. As a... <laughs> Right, exactly. So <laughs> the answer we're is we're living in a no. Yeah, Santa Claus is real. There's a tooth fairy. Everything's great. Yeah, and there's a Yamaha 350. Uh, one last thing before and you a go. Yamaha 350. <laughs> one last thing before we wrap this thing up because uh, we've how long we've been going over three hours. It's been awesome. Um, w when we we had a little tech break and uh, open up my phone, first thing I see, Roxon on a Yamaha 450 at what looked like Club MX thoughts yeah makes sense uh i got a anonymous text and i won't say who but is there gonna be a cowie or a yamaha which i kind of knew it was going on i knew he was going to try at yamaha at some point 
I didn't know it was going to be a club Yamaha. If, if maybe it, we don't know if it is or not. I didn't see the picture, but uh, dude, it makes sense. Like for me, that team, low pressure situation. If he likes the bike, if they can do their certain things to the bike, um, he's kind of like Chad in a way, man. Yeah. He uh, he complains a lot about his bike, uh, but he knows what he wants. But the the difference between him and Chad is like he's one on some of the settings that he complains about. So you're like, as a team, you're like, holy shit, man, this guy won, but yet he's still complaining about the same bike so, or the same part. So it might be an undertaking if he does go that way with club, but I know the guys over there, and I can tell you right now, those guys are willing to put the work in to have him, if he's on the team, to put him on the team. Because I don't care if people say, man, oh, Roxon's washed up. That's bullshit. The dude can win AMA races here at any point in time, Supercross especially. We see his raw speed all the time, his opening lap speed. It's it's unmatchable. It's insane. And now if he gets on a team that puts him in a different mood and he likes it and he likes the bike, who knows, right? We never know. Yeah. I Actually, I've been saying this a little bit, and I don't want to risk like sounding redundant, but I think that I think that Kenny's the dude that probably should just go, I'm just going to be the world Supercross guy. Like, I'm going to be the guy that, I want to be the international rider. I'm from Germany. I want to be the guy that puts takes Supercross global. I'm going to take a risk at the end of my career. I think that the WSX guys need to pay him for it. Um, I think one of the ways they could do it is just like give him a bunch of cash to prepare for next season by uh, saying mm-hmm. you don't have to ride for a team. Here's a bunch of money. Pick whatever bike you want. Do whatever you want. Uh, and then you race seven eight nine like you don't risk your body you know what i mean figure out what you need to do to like get healthy you're not yes you're not going to win the ama championship but it's like i mean would you say now that he i mean you can never say kenny won't win a championship like i I just he's just too good right to not but it's like if you just go off history you've got eli in his last year you got ando you got sexton like there's guys now that are that well coops won too and i mean he's probably not in the conversation um of being like a favorite you know so it's like does kenny just fully go like all right i'm gonna go all in on this world supercross thing and i'm only gonna use the the world supercross uh the ama as like a testing ground for for the wsx and then you just ride whatever bike you want you put and then you've got a chance to put your own corporate sponsors on it because i mean he could get any parts that he wanted for sure he could oh, if yeah. he chose to yeah. ride a yamaha he'd do whatever he wants. you get he's already got a nice motorhome you get yourself a little transporter like you don't need to go two two spec and get a semi and do all that sort of shit but you just do it yourself and you just under the guise of like i'm getting ready for world supercross and then you're going into next year as a you know with a number one plate it's going to be an eight to ten round series and then all of a sudden the conversation isn't around Kenny never won an AMA Supercross championship. It was Kenny was the guy that took Supercross global. And I, I think about, and I've, you know, like I said, I've said it before, but it's like give him his Conor McGregor moment where he like pushes to bring a Supercross to Germany. And it's like that becomes, that would be a national story in Germany to be like, oh, here is the best motocross rider that Germany's ever produced He's an international talent on par with some of our, you know, best German athletes. And he's now campaigned to bring Supercross home. Like, I just feel like storyline-wise, 
and like for his legacy in the sport, that looks so much better to me than if he wins an AMA Supercross championship. Or, I mean, honestly, that looks better too if versus him coming to this this team and struggling all year, right? Yep. That kind of hurts his legacy here, you know, even though he's a bad mofo and all the things that he's done in our sport. Uh, I mean, you would never even, if you're new to this sport, you would never even know he was a foreigner. You would just think he is a guy living in Florida. You wouldn't even know he's German. Like, yeah. And for the most part, the dude's always cool, down to earth, uh, down to rap with you, pretty pretty chill guy. But you know that if he does, you know, not great and just does decent, he's not going to be in a great mood. Uh, it's going to hurt his reputation, maybe the team or whoever he's on, because he's going to be bummed out. So, yeah, it, it's not a bad thought. Like, I was thinking that same thing before you even said that. I wonder if he would just do uh, WSX. But I think what happens is that these guys' pride, right? It gets yeah. in the way. Like, yeah. I know deep down I can still win. I believe that. Maybe we don't believe it, but they do. Yeah. I can win. I can beat Eli. I don't care what you say. I can beat Anderson. Like, whatever. Give me this bike. I know I have a good bike. I can win. That's what all they're thinking. Like, I don't even think – the money and the money is a factor with all these guys but when it comes down to it they're racers mm. and the money is there and they need that but i think they want to go race and they want to be the best and then the money comes with all of that right like yeah. i just think um i just think there's too many too many good guys now and roxon's getting older he can win races yes but is he going to win a championship probably not unless other things happen to the other guys that we were talking about. You know, yeah. he is still capable of winning on any given night, but stringing 17, 16 rounds together, difficult, you know? And for whatever reason, he's been through hell and back with his injuries. I just think those things have added up over time. And now we're here and it's just hit and miss. Now we get rocks and we've seen it all year. Great speed. Raw speed's great fitness don't know which one you're getting we don't yeah. know which guy's coming right so i don't know yeah and i and i think that, that that's a good point too you know like because we've kind of seen the tread the trend sorry of guys that it, like they hang on too long and then they'll go from factory team right. to satellite team to the satellite team doesn't work and then they pull out halfway through and it just they just fizzle out into nothing and it's it's almost like he could just take control of the narrative himself and then I think he's like already done that by like ripping up. There was like a million dollar Honda contract. You know what I mean? Like he ripped that shit yeah. up and and said like the you know I'm doing this for the fans and blah blah blah. I think that you know there's other storylines at play at HRC that probably like went into that that decision. And then it's like so in my opinion he's like he's halfway there. Like don't go to a club MX. Keep all your own sponsors. Do your own not that's saying if it's club mx you know we don't he could just be riding a yamaha right. at the track but it's like don't go to right. another team at all pick the bike that's best for you and then imagine how dope like it looks if kenny comes out already says he's not doing the full season wins a1 then he's like fifth or yeah. sixth at at you know at uh san diego or whatever and you're like ah we tried some different shit like it really did he's got a, just a built-in excuse for every time he does shit and then when he wins, it's like, oh, yeah, I was feeling good. Like, this is what I'm capable of. Like, I always know, I know this is what I'm capable of. And then it's like, he could just own the narrative, whether it goes good or bad the entire year. You get sick, just take a couple rounds off. 
you know what I mean? You want to go on holidays, take, take a couple rounds off. But every time, and then I think yeah. the WSX wins when they when Kenny's on the podium by just saying, "I'm only here to prep for World Supercross. I'm only here to prep for World Supercross." It's like he's just fully taking control. It's almost like he's hijacking the sport for himself. And I just think that there's so few opportunities where you get to fully control the narrative in the way that Kenny would be able to if he kind of went like went down this road. Look at any sports, any any sport, ball and stick, motorsports, how many guys have been able to go out on top in their prime? There's not very many. Yeah. Not very many. The more the uh the percentage would say the one that you just talked about, the guy dropping down dropping down then just kind of says okay this is it it's not working out i'm out and then that's what some of these people remember by so it's not about that never even thought about it like that but now that you said it it sounds lucrative but again pride i'm out because i want to win i can still win here don't tell me i don't tell me i can go to wsx and win i know i can win that but i'm gonna go prove all you mfers that i can do it here so that's kenny yeah, that's what he's doing, right? Just like when he ripped the contract at Hana. I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you. Same thing with this. I feel like he's gonna show us. I don't know, but I I love him in our sport. We need him in our sport. Like people are like, oh, he should retire, and like, dude, we no. need that kind of guy in our sport. He makes it better. Yeah, he yeah. makes it better, man. Like unbelievable talent. I love watching him ride. Unreal to watch ride. Like watching him in Oz, man. I'm just like. Dude, how many guys can ride hard pack like that? Like, it's insane. Like, he's so good. Dude, him, the way that he was hitting the whoops, like, we're all just, and I mean, I've seen so many fucking Supercross races in my life, and it was just, it was like moto pornography watching him hit these fucking whoops, bro. You could, all you could hear was his chain slapping. (laughs) That's it. He carried so much entry speed that it was just chain slapped. That's it. A little bit of throttle. And then just boop, off the last one. Two wheel slide, no throttle, boop, over the single. And you're just like, fuck off. It's so sick. Yeah. So it's like to even have anyone say that dude should retire from the sport, eat a dick. <laughs> like get the fuck out of here. Right. Seriously. You're not a fan of the sport because yeah. I would like to, I want to watch him ride. I want to see him ride. Like especially if he's on a new bike, dude. Like world supercross or not like he's going to be on a new bike that's intriguing to me as a fan i want to see how he rides a, a yamaha or cowie or whatever he's going to ride it's going to be awesome no nah, i'm with you well hey we could be here for another three and a half hours but i'm going to let you get back up to the high des and uh i appreciate man i really enjoyed this show i know that there's going to be a lot of moto nerds out there that are just going to froth on uh some of the the topics i hope you enjoyed <laughs> the experience uh and it definitely will not be the last time that uh Kiefer Inc. is uh, is represented on the podcast, mate. So I really appreciate it, and I had so much fun. Yeah, thank you very much. I had a great time. It goes by fast when you're having a good time with with someone you can share dirt bikes with. So I appreciate the time. Love to come back talk more about dirt bikes and uh, good luck with everything. Get your ass down here to California, back here. Let's do some riding. We'll get you involved in the testing loop. Get you get you get you out here ripping around. So hopefully you'll come back here soon, dude. I'm there for it. Later, bro. All right, bro. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.